Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 165 of X-Lapsed, where we're going to be taking a look at the many, 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 many deaths of Quentin Choir today. Um, this is X-Force, volume 6, number 17. This had a cover date of April 2021. Stories called Omega Reconsidered. Written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Joshua Kassara. Colors, Guru EFX, letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna, designs, Tom Muller, head of Exus Hickman. Edits, Amaro, Basso, White, Sabolski, cover price $4. This one went on sale February 10 of 2021. Now, uh, this one has that cover I think I complained about uh, before I kind of knew what the issue was all about. Uh, this is where Quentin Quire is wearing a t-shirt that says, uh, you know, I, I died a hundred times and all I got was this stupid t-shirt. Something like that. Something like that. And I was like... Man, I, I wish they weren't making such a joke out of this. And, uh, well, after reading the issue, maybe my opinion changes a little bit. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe your opinion changes a little bit. Maybe it doesn't. We'll get there, though. Because we open on a montage of Quentin Choir's many, 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 many deaths. Which, I mean, if you think of the QQ deaths we have seen, you know, I mean, there were a lot of them, right? Here are a bunch more that we've never seen. So, uh, in addition to all the deaths that we've read about, there's more. Uh, first, he's blown to bits. Next, he's run over by a steamroller. Then he's bathed in acid, clobbered by a bear, run through with a sword via samurai, eaten alive by spiders, launched into deep space, perforated with bullets, poisoned by some flowers sent by the Church of Humanity, thrown out of an airplane, and dunked in hot lava. And, uh... Hmm, you know, like I said, the t-shirt says he died a hundred times. I, I thought it was an exaggeration at first, but it might not be. Now, over the course of this montage, Quentin is delivering a narration, which questions why it is that he keeps dying. We got Wolverine and Domino, the other frontline members of X-Force. They haven't died nearly this much. And he considers for a moment that maybe he lets, maybe he keeps letting himself die because the resurrection protocols are a thing, Right. And since, at his core, he's just plain not happy with himself and loves having the opportunity to continually be reborn. In the present, Quentin reveals that today's not a day that he's looking to die because he's, you know, he's got a date with Phoebe Cuckoo. Well, he had a date with her before X-Force duty called. He's being sent to a cruise ship that's drifting dangerously or suspiciously close to Krakoa. And so, one construct jetpack ride later, and QQ is there. Now, Quentin arrives while puffing himself up a bit. You know, he's solo, Wolverine and Domino, uh, they're elsewhere, so he's kind of puffing himself up, saying, 
Eh, you know, the other two, they're just his sidekicks anyway, and he doesn't really need them. Now, what he finds aboard this ship is, uh, pretty horrific. It's hundreds of dead bodies. He manages to scan out a few sparks of life, which he follows into one of the cabins. There, he finds a little girl clutching her teddy bear. And he tells her to, you know, relax, you know, I'm here to save you, I'm one of the good guys. To which she corrects him and says, no, 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 you're the bad guy. Our hero then turns around and sees something that he declares to be impossible. We don't get to see it, but uh, we'll probably have a pretty good idea of exactly what it was as we get through here. But first, a double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. We only got two characters to pay attention to this time out, Kid Omega and Phoebe Cuckoo. Then, an info page. This is Beast's report on the cruise ship massacre. Now, he blames the attack on a group of anti-mutant propagandists who call themselves the Sapiens, which is to say the discovery of this cruise ship being so close to Krakoa was no accident. This crew was looking to foment fear and hatred against the mutants, uh, forgetting for a moment that that's kind of been their tagline for almost 60 years now. Back to comics, and Quentin Quire is being resurrected yet again, which means he died on that cruise ship. Now, interestingly enough, uh, the five don't even seem to bother to be here to watch. Uh, I suppose a hundred times on the same dude, it might get a little bit boring or routine, or you'd probably just figure it's muscle memory at this point. Hell, Professor Xavier isn't even here to upload his memory. Instead, the only person who seems to want to be in the same room with him, Phoebe Cuckoo, does the honors. He asks her how he died this last time, and Phoebe reveals that she doesn't know. Uh, She does share with him the memories of their relationship, which makes him very happy indeed. Now, it might be worth noting here, it might not be worth noting, but uh, Quentin Quire is like... Totally ripped here. He is shredded. (laughs) You wouldn't expect this kid to have this body, but he is a a fairly muscular fellow here. Now, Quentin really wants to know how he died. He's getting tired of having these little holes in his memory, which I suppose after having like a hundred of them, they really start to add up and you really lose a bit of time. He also considers his lack of memory to be a matter of national security. And, well, bravado aside, he's not entirely wrong. Next up, info page. This is some notes from the five regarding the many, 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 many deaths of Quentin Quire, and all of the uh, modification requests he's made. We do know that the five are willing to help out with modifications here and there. I mean, they won't give Callisto her eye back. Then again, maybe she didn't ask. Um, anyway, we see here that there have been 310 requests made by Quentin Quire, which I don't know if that means there's actually been 310 resurrections, but, I mean, at this point, it really wouldn't surprise me if that were the case. Now, these requests are mostly cosmetic. Uh, He wants his hair color changed ever so slightly and then changed back. Uh, He also wants uh, hair follicles removed from places that he doesn't want to bother to shave anymore. He'd like for his eyes to have perfect 2020 vision so he could be one of those a-holes who only wear glasses to accessorize. And uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a legally blind guy talking here, and uh, I, I don't like it when people wear glasses as a fashion accessory only. Uh, also, he wants his redacted shaped a certain way. Uh, we can assume he probably means his nose. Hmm. Now, in any case, the five are very annoyed by his persnicketiness and claim that he's slowing down the resurrection process. And uh, to them, I guess it's just too bad that X-Force is uh, above the law, huh? So, uh, I guess just do your job, hoping the gang. 
Now, back to comics. We got Quentin and Phoebe visiting the handful of cruise ship survivors at a hospital. Quentin reads the thoughts of the first they come across, and it would appear that this guy has memories of being attacked by Wolverine. Quentin looks at the claw marks left on his chest and remarks that uh, they're off by several centimeters, uh, so it couldn't actually be their Wolverine behind this attack. The next survivor has memories of Colossus shoving his thumbs into her eye sockets. But that can't be the case, because after 17 issues, Colossus still isn't even officially a featured character in this book. Uh, I, I mean, he was in the Savage Land at the time of the attack, so it couldn't be him. Now, the girl with the teddy bear is last, and, uh, well, what she sees is a monstrous version of Quentin Choir himself. Phoebe states that these survivors all carry psionic scars, which mean that Quentin's fingerprints are all over their minds. Well, how can that be? Hmm. Later, P and Q are walking down the street, and, uh, you know, I always considered Quentin to be a strange dresser, but uh, next to Phoebe and her ex-poncho, he looks damn near normal. Anyway, he is worried about what he might have done, because, you know, he does have holes in his memory. Phoebe says they'll figure it out together and not to worry. Our hero calls her out for hating his guts back in the day. Which, well, I mean, come on, that's not really fair, because everyone hated his guts back in the day, and most still do. Phoebe tells him that he's got to quit throwing himself a pity party and compares him to a person living in his own movie. She reveals that he can be the nicest, sweetest guy, and what's more, she knows deep down that he wants to be. She compares his sweetness to that of a strawberry, which, uh, is a fruit that I recently found that I was allergic to, which I guess makes a fair bit of sense in this situation. Phoebe tells QQ that he's not responsible for what happened on the cruise ship. And she knows this because she stowed away in the Morlock healer's mind while he performed his, I don't know, autopsy? I, I thought Cecilia Reyes did those, but uh, I don't know. Anyway, Quentin's head was torn off and his body was filled with glutamate, the chemical of fear. Now, our heroes kiss, and Phoebe nearly bites Quentin's bottom lip off. Now, if you've ever had your bottom lip nibbled on, you, you could probably appreciate how nice that can be. This, however, is a very painful-looking panel. Like, she is... You know, this is like she's chewing gum. It's, it's pretty rough. Now, Quentin then decides to craft a psychic key to unlock his mind here. He wants to know if he could figure things out. And I mean, that's probably just got to be for the theater of the thing, right? Uh, him showing a, shoving a, like a glowing pink key into his eye hole. Whatever the case, it makes for a neat visual, uh, and it facilitates a trip into flashback land. We learn here, or actually it's uh, reaffirmed here, because I think we knew this information already, uh, that Quentin was an orphan, and, uh, well, actually, he was an orphan maker. No relation. His parents were abusive toward him, and so he killed them. This seems as though it happened before his mutant powers manifested. Back in the present, Quentin sheds a single tear. Not sure if this was a memory that he'd forgotten or buried so deep that he never thought about it. Um, then, a bunch of strawberry soda bottles explode their caps off. Um, likely a euphemism for Quentin needing a new pair of pants pretty quickly. It's a good thing they're headed to somewhere where he can get some. Just then, a piano falls from the sky like uh, we're in an old slapstick short or something, but Quentin stops it before it crushes them. Phoebe tells him it's time for him to change his look a bit, and so she takes him to Jumbo Carnation's shop. 
And you know, for like a one-note character who appeared like for all of a cup of coffee during the Morrison run, uh, old Jumbo's getting a whole lot of panel time these days. From here we get uh, like a sitcom montage. You know when a character on a sitcom is trying out new looks And so we get like the silly music playing And we get to see them wearing a bunch of weird outfits Like jumping out from the dressing room, you know That, that sort of thing Yeah, we get a page of that um, I could swear, though I could be mistaken That we've already had a scene or two like this During our X-Lapsed run Now it's very seldom funny uh, But I assume it's fun for the artists So I won't complain too much about it Now we get QQ in the following get-ups here First, a bondage suit because, uh, yeah, why not? Then a pink skin-tight full bodysuit with full head coverage. You know, like kind of like a Spider-Man or Dead, uh, Deadpool sort of thing where, like, everything's covered. Then he gets Cable's early 90s outfit with a pouch gag. Are we tired of those yet? Or are those still funny? Yeah. Then Glob Herman's pink jello coating, which is odd. Then we get one that looks like Gladiator of the Shi'ar's costume, which, okay. Then finally we get Wolverine's costume Okay And then really finally Quentin's new duds here And it's a pretty neat looking costume As far as costumes go But totally takes away from Choir's uniqueness Uh, I'm not sure why we need him In an actual superhero costume Doesn't seem like a good fit for the character At least not in my opinion Then Quentin sees a weird version of himself In the mirror and this weird version uh, attacks Jumbo Carnation, I think. We wrap up by finding out that the leader of the Court of Owls, I mean Zeno, has been watching this all unfold. And he's got tanks full of random body parts in the background, which kind of tells us where this story might be headed. But that's where we leave it. Next episode, we're going to take a look at Cable number 8. But of course, that is next time, so... Uh... For now, let's talk about this issue of X-Force. And I'd like to start by saying, um... I might just owe Ben Percy an apology here. Uh, uh, Now, if you recall, back before our story was so rudely interrupted by the Festival of Swords, Quentin was stabbed and dragged through a portal by Mikhail Rasputin, right? I believe he was then handed over to Zeno, so we don't know if he's dead or not. And I'm pretty sure I wrote that off as just sloppy or lazy or inattentive storytelling. But now I'm like 85% convinced that it was the whole point. Um, From what we know of X-Force, they're basically above all Krakoan governing bodies, right? So they don't really answer to anybody. They can override whatever, right? So pesky things like having X-Factor verify a death before resurrection... Could in theory be ignored, right? So who's to say that this Quentin That we read about in this very issue Who is growing and maturing And becoming a likable sort Isn't a dupe Like what if That montage of deaths we saw at the beginning of the issue Were all deaths of Quentin dupes Dying because They know they're not the genuine article Or the genuine Resurrected cloned body I guess Um I really think that that might be where this is headed And you know what? I I really kind of like it um, We see Quentin here He's all full of hope He's willing to change He's willing to grow and mature And I mean, you know, personally speaking, I've been there You know, I've changed many things about myself After meeting the woman who'd somehow agree to become my wife, right? You mature 
you try and make yourself into a more idealized version of yourself, the best version of yourself you can be, a way in which you can best complement your, uh, you know, your better half or your other half. And uh, I feel like that's what Quentin is doing here. And I have a sneaking suspicion that it's about to lead into some very severe heartache for one Phoebe Cuckoo, and maybe for the readers as well. At least those of the those of us who wanted to see the softer side of Quentin Quire. Now, on that subject, uh, when we got to the first Quentin and Phoebe scenes, I was all but ready to compare this to the old Jeff Johns approach to writing characters that we love to hate as flawed and relatable, which in actuality makes them uh, like a hundred times less fun to actually read about because, you know, you now, you now have, you know about their trauma, right? You know that, the, you know, uh, Captain Cold is only bad because he was beaten when he was a kid and you, you can't hate the guy anymore. You can't even love to hate him. It's just like you see him and you're like, ah. Or, you know, Black Hand uh, isn't just some sort of creep. He's got, like, this uh, weird backstory with uh, abusive parents and a neglected childhood and dead things. <laughs> we, they, I, I mean, you can't... I, hopefully we can't relate to that, but it makes the character uh, more of a shade of gray. And that's what I was thinking we were going to get here with the, the Quentin Choir story, uh, where we are softening him. We're making him less hateable in a way. And I was worried that they were, like, fleshing him out. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if he really should be. And, uh, I mean, do we need to like Quentin Choir to appreciate him, right? I, I mean, we can appreciate that he's here, but do we need to like him? Is it more fun to hate him? Is it more fun that he's just, like, a thorn in our side? He's a fun irritant, right? He's a guy who, he's a net positive to any cast he's in, but do we have to like him? Do we have to relate to him? Do we have to uh, empathize with him? Do we need more? I'm not convinced that we do, which I was ready to write this issue off as some of that, but in seeing the direction that this is going, and we have, you know, the, the girl with the teddy bear saying she was attacked by, by Quentin, and Quentin was not there, and then we see Zeno's involved, and there's body parts, and we know that Mikhail brought Quentin to Zeno, and part of me is wondering if uh, he's going to be in a tube somewhere like they found Domino earlier in this series. And when he's ultimately rescued, he's going to come out and be the same, you know, dickhead Quentin Choir that he's always been. And Phoebe's going to be heartbroken. And I think, I really think there's a lot of mileage here. And I hope that's the direction we're going. And would also kind of lampshade the montage of death that we saw at the beginning of this issue. That is, of course, under the assumption that... All of these deaths have occurred since Mikhail took Quentin to Zeno, which uh, is to say that this other dupe, Quentin, maybe they know. Maybe this dupe knows that there's something else out there. Maybe Quentin's powers allow him to communicate the fact that, uh, hey, you're not the real one. And so maybe he's a little bit easier to kill because he knows that he doesn't actually belong if... Uh, if you follow what I'm trying to say here, I, I'm sure I'm making this a thousand times more complicated and convoluted than it needs to be. I guess uh, quick and dirty is these Quentins that have come since Mikhail took the real one to Zeno knew that there's another one out there, and so they are more likely to let themselves die like being run over by a uh, steamroller or by smelling flowers sent by a mutant hate group. So... <laughs> 
if that is the case, well, sign me up. I'm uh, I'm ready for this story. I, I think it could be a lot of fun, and it might provide us with uh, some more some more questions uh, about the resurrection protocols and uh, X forces uh, being above the law. I think. Uh, this is, this is some pretty good stuff Also, the art is uh, fairly amazing <laughs> It's really, really, really good But uh, that, at the risk of repeating myself over and over again I will stop <laughs> That's all I've got to say about this issue of X-Force Now, we do not have any mail today uh, The mailbag is sadly, sadly empty So if uh, anybody out there would like to reach out Please, please consider doing so uh, We do... Have a little bit of news here I uh, subjected myself to some uh, Websites earlier today To see if there was any news And we have a little bit uh, First, some of the election results are in If you remember, we are voting for the final member Of the new X-Men team here And we have some results Two people have been eliminated from contention here And those two are Strong Guy and Forge Neither of them will be part of our new X-Men team So we're down to, what, eight Eight that are the, uh, the great eight who might be that final member Also, there's some news on the Reign of X Summer of Bloat Because I've been checking around on the internet And uh, many folks agree Just as uh, Damien suggested over on Facebook That the classified Leo Williams Valerio Shidi comic book Might be called The Trial now, if you've seen this infographic of the Summer of Bloat, you'll see that the first word is most definitely the. And then there's a short word after it, and it does look like you can see a T, R, and I, and I think the top of an A as well. So people are considering that this might be called the trial. But whose trial? Huh. Well, part of me wonders if that tip that Evan sent us a little bit ago about that weird email exchange in Strange Academy number 5... Might hold that answer What do you all think? I think that uh, Hmm, you know, maybe Before the uh, the speculator apps Get wind of this If you see Strange Academy 5, maybe pick it up Because uh, we're looking for any reason To pump value into these books So <laughs> it would not surprise me one bit If they're like, wait a minute This all started in Strange Academy 5 So if you see it and you don't already have it, maybe consider picking it up. It's just uh, that's my my hot stock tip for you. Uh, now another theory about the summer of bloat page, and this is my own theory, and it's that there is no actual title under the redacted bar. Maybe just a couple of placeholder words, just to make us think there's something and make us uh, obsess and theorize. And you know, I only say that um, because. I'm looking at the uh, the other classified redacted bar here on on Hickman's new X book, whatever it's going to be. His artist is redacted, right? Now, if we zoom in on it, it looks as though the first five letters under the redaction bar for Hickman's artist are A R T I S, which says to me it might just be a placeholder for artist to be determined, or TBD, or TBA. Um, I'm wondering if it's just placeholder text so they could cover it and make us theorize. I've seen people suggest that it might be Arthur Adams, uh, but it doesn't look like an H after that T. Um, unless it's highly stylized, which it very well could be, it definitely looks like artist TBD. Now, 
As for the mystery book itself, which if you're familiar with the infographic, it's just a circle with a question mark in it. The leading theories I'm finding uh, are that uh, this could be that Mora book that I think I just congratulated Marvel for their restraint in not giving us. So, oh well. (laughs) Hopefully that means if this is a Mora series, ongoing or limited, that there, there are about to be some answers dropped in our laps, or at least some more interesting uh, wrinkles in the uh, new landscape. But that's the news for today. Uh, if, if anybody out there has any hot news tips, please feel free to send them my way, and we can uh, discuss them on future episodes. And of course, you can reach me a few different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts, show notes, and uh, actual uh, real blog posts nowadays over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com for the episodes of the programs. You can chat us up on Facebook where we're having some fun conversations about a lot of different things, including the Summer of Bloat. Our little group is 90s X-Men. Pretty easy to find, uh, and I hope you decide to check us out and chat us up. Finally, all your Chris and Reggie listening needs can be found at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all your noise aggregation uh, device and applications. And that is where we'll leave it for today. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for joining me today and sharing a little bit of your day. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. This is Chris. Welcome to episode 167 of X-Lapsed, where today we're going to be discussing a book in which absolutely nothing happens. Nothing at all. Nothing important. Nothing senses-shattering. Nothing noteworthy. Nothing at all. Well, those of you who have already read this issue of Marauders know I'm uh, I'm just uh, having a little fun with you. This is a... 
This is gonna, something's going to happen in this issue we're going to want to discuss. <laughs> now, this is Marauders number 18, which had an April 2021 cover date. The story's called Saving Face. Written by Jerry Duggan, with art by Stefano Caselli and Matteo Lali. Colors Edgar Delgado, letters VT's Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sapolsky, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale February 17 of 2021. Now we open with a mostly blank quote page. Uh, it's an anonymous UN ambassador talking about the lawlessness of Madripoor. I mean, because Madripoor is uh, lawless. Now we really open with comics, and uh, Magneto and Professor Xavier are arriving in the lawless Madripoor for a ceremony being held by Emma Frost. But that's all they really know. Charles asks Magneto if he knows anything about what's to go down. He asks, you know, only because he knows that Eric has been helping Emma with the upcoming Hellfire Gala. Now, Charles is surprised to see the warm reception they're receiving uh, by a bunch of street kids, but, I mean, beggars can't be choosers. Now, Emma and the Marauders are stood before a hospital, and she is just about to make an announcement that we will probably be spending a whole lot of time talking about. Now, this is an event so large that it's being televised throughout Madripoor. And so, Omanes Verendi are also watching it play out via television. And they are none too happy. Now, as we learned a little while back, the Verendi government had grand plans for demolishing Lowtown and building a bunch of high-rises that uh, nobody would probably want to live in, but, you know, what are you going to do? Now, when Call Me Kate found out about this upon visiting with that Fisher family who rescued and nursed Lockheed back to health, uh, she called into Emma to see what they might do to stop this from playing out. And so, Hellfire has been buying up properties all over Lowtown, including uh, they built this brand new hospital, which they say will be free to all citizens. Emma then has Proteus... You know, one of the five here, he, he is here for a very important reason. She has him pull a banner off the giant red cross on the side of the building, revealing who this hospital is in honor of. Any guesses? Well, here's a hint. Uh, it's one of mutantum's most staunch human allies. Well, we don't know her to be human anymore, but uh, for the longest time we thought she was. It's Maura McTaggart. Huh. Okay. There's also a statue of Mora, and she's depicted as wearing that floppy, like, blossom hat from the scene that we saw, like, a dozen times during Hoxpox, which... Huh. That's interesting. Now, Magneto and Charles are, you know, shocked. Just like I assume many of us are, I know I was. Kitty then thanks Emma for putting this all together, to which Emma says was all worth it just to see the look on Charles and Eric's faces. Um, well, uh, does that, does that mean that she, uh, uh, does she not, uh, uh, we'll talk about that later. Let's hop into a double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. We got Professor X, Magneto, Emma Frost, Callisto, Iceman, Bishop, Call Me Kate, Pyro, and Mask. Uh, the Morlock, of course. Now back to comics, and Callisto is giving Mask a job at the hospital. Now, if you recall, the Morlock Mask, currently of uh, Rio Verde, Arizona, he's got the power to change people's appearance with a touch, which was traditionally used in some very, you know, horrific ways. Here, however, Callisto has other plans. Mask will perform the duty of a plastic surgeon. 
Now, he doesn't quite understand what she's getting at here, and he's both annoyed and a bit nervous. Callisto brings him over to a hopeful family who have a child with a cleft palate. Mask now sort of gets it, but he's still very nervous about his abilities and pulling off what's expected of him. He touches the baby, and bada-bing, he fixes the child's palate. The parents grab Mask in a big old bear hug. After they leave, he looks at his hands with the realization that he has the ability to do some good, and Callisto smiles knowingly. The scene shifts, and now we're at a pretty gross saloon, uh, probably one of the places old Patches probably had a scrap or two in. Iceman, Pyro, and Bishop head inside and ask for the owner. Now Bobby offers the fella a duffel bag full of money for the bar, the land, and the whorehouse next door. Dude takes the money and runs. And so Hellfire now owns yet another bit of Madriporian property. I tell ya, I like that they're showing us this. As it, I mean, I mean, it shows us the process, you know? It's not just Emma Frost sitting in front of a computer screen telling someone on the phone to buy something, right? The Marauders are actually out there pounding the pavement in order to get this done. Now, meanwhile, Omen as Varendi are, uh, well, they're still angry. Cade Kilgore and Max von Frankenstein then reveal a vat full of monstrosities. Now, it's some body horror cyborgish fellas that they're calling the New Reavers. And I could swear we've already seen some baddies who look just like this. Maybe an X-Force? Or maybe I'm conflating them with uh, Tarn the Uncaring's crew from Arako or Amenth or wherever the hell they were. Whatever the case, they're pretty gross. We jump back to the saloon and our marauders share a drink to commemorate the occasion. Suddenly, the new Reavers attack. And so, for the next several pages, we've got a bar fight. Iceman recognizes one of these baddies, and here we learn the gimmick of these new Reavers. Now, this guy, who Bobby recognizes, is the one that he broke the arm off of back on that ship where Bishop found Call Me Corpse's Kate. I mean, Call Me Kate's corpse. Another two of the fellows were maimed by Wolverine right there in Madripoor, and another was wrecked by Gorgon during the Davos Summit way back in, I think it was X-Men number four. And I tell you what, gang, it's going to suck when we're going to have to start clarifying which volume of post-Hoxpox X-Men we're talking about at the uh, during the summer, in it. So yeah, the new Reavers are comprised of dudes who the Krakoan contingent have injured and or maimed. Which, you know, it fits the mold for how the original Reavers came together back in the long ago. They were Wade Cole, Angelo Macon, or Mackin, and Murray Reese, the Hellfire Knights that Wolverine took out during the famous Wolverine Alone story back in X-Men number 133. And uh, that's X-Men Volume 1, by the way. So, they fight. Now, Bishop goads them into shooting him so he can repay the favor with a kinetic blast. This blows out the front of the bar, where as luck or... Verendi propaganda would have it, a newswoman is already on the scene reporting on the fracas. The marauders are made to look like quite the menace, and so they hightail it back to the boat. Info page. Bishop cluing Beast in on the latest mission. Now, if we remember, Lucas is working as something of a double agent here. It's, uh, this letter here is basically a recitation of everything we just saw. It's wholly unnecessary, and only here as a reminder that Bishop is reporting things back to Hank, I would assume. We shift over to the United Nations, where Madripoor Ambassador Donald Pierce is appealing to have the Marauders kept off the shores of Madripoor due to, you know, all the violence and whatnot. Which, I mean, yeah, it was an explosive bar fight, but 
doesn't that sort of thing happen most nights on Madripoor? I mean, we just read how lawless it is, and I mean, Wolverine does more damage than that on his own. And while on the subject, I mean, this might be inconvenient, but Wolverine, if his solo book is to be believed, is currently there. I mean, he's at the Legacy Auction House on Madripoor, so... Eh, what are you gonna do? Whatever the case, the UN seems to buy into Pierce's plea, and the Marauders are now banned from Madripoor. Now, it's worth noting that Pierce offers to turn the discussion over to Krakoa's UN delegate, only whoever that might be isn't here. It's just an empty chair, so... I ask you this, have we ever learned or even thought about who this might be? I'm not sure. I know Jean sat in on the UN during uh, the first issue of X-Men Red, right? Uh, you know, the, the last time they tried starting a mutant nation. No, no, the other last time. The other, other last time they tried making a mutant nation. They, they sure do this a lot, don't they? Hmm. Anyway. Back to Ominous Verandy for the end here. The Hellfire kids are celebrating their victory by watching a riot play out in Lowtown. They send the Reavers in to uh, do something that I'm guessing we'll see play out next issue. That'll do it for Marauders. Next episode, Cyclops rejoins the champions. Huh. But for today, let's stick with the Marauders chatter here because we got a lot to dig into here. Um, let's start with uh, the Reavers. This is a great way to use some X-Men lore to create, you know, an all-new threat here. We don't have enough threats in this era. Now, as mentioned, the original Reavers were the baddies who were maimed by the X-Men, or Wolverine, anyway. And here, it's, you know, pretty much the same thing. This also shows us that there was a measure of consequence to to how ruthless the Marauders have been during their battles... And I think, and I've mentioned this before, this is one of the things that kept me from, like, 100% falling for this book, right? It was always kind of just there, that they these these characters were hyper-violent, and uh, it just felt out of character. I mean, we had Kitty, like, phasing bars in between, you know, people's legs and stuff, and then, re, you know, unfazing them, so they would be, like, stuck together. Uh, Iceman freezing and then smashing limbs, it didn't feel like the way these characters ought to be behaving, and now they're going to have to own up to it. So I, I really like that here. It makes it feel like all of this was uh, purpose-driven, right? All of this ruthlessness, all of this just, I guess, barbarism um, was building to something, and uh, it was building to this. Let's talk about the uh, Marauders actually being shown putting in the work to buy up the Madriporian real estate. Uh, I found that very, very refreshing. Uh, So often in comics these days, especially Marvel, uh, this sort of transaction would have been, like, relegated to, like, a bunch of people sitting in a dimly lit, monitor-filled room saying, you know, make it so. Like they're in the first arc of a Netflix original series or something, or I guess any random Bendis comic. These are really the kind of scenes we ought to be seeing if this is going to be, you know, one of the Marauders' goals for this arc. So I gotta say, I was happy that this wasn't relegated to just a group of suits uh, making things happen, or an info page. This was uh, actually something they showed us, and it led to a, uh, a fairly decent scene, right? Let's scoot over to the United Nations. Um, seeing Donald Pierce with his cyborg parts addressing the UN was pretty hilarious. Uh, I did like it, though. I thought it was okay. Having the Marauders banned from entering Madripoor is... Mm, a little bit convenient, perhaps. Especially, I mean, when the book tells us over and over and over again how lawless Madripoor, especially Lowtown, really is, 
It seems weird to point out this one bar fight as reason enough to ban an entire group from, uh, you know, putting their feet on the ground here. I mean, even as we speak, aren't Wolverine and Maverick slicing and dicing through an auction house right there? I don't know. Whatever the case, I suppose it does move the story forward. And it also makes us wonder who the uh, Krakoan UN delegate might be. I mean, has this ever been stated? I figure if it were, you know, we might have gotten a name drop here. Uh, Maybe it's leading to a reveal. Maybe it's not. Who knows? So really, that's, that's about it, isn't it? Absolutely nothing else happened in this issue. Oh, oh, <clears throat> we haven't talked about art yet. The art, um, as always, was very nice. So yeah, I, I guess that's all we have to say about this issue, isn't it? All right. All right, all right. Let's talk about Mora. Um, not even sure where to begin. It seems like Emma definitely knows something. Uh, what and how much remains to be seen. But this does raise a whole lot of questions, uh, both good questions as well as inconvenient ones. Um, now, Emma is a pretty powerful telepath, right? Yeah? Uh, so it might stand to reason that she, along with the cuckoos who were always nearby, may have been able to, I don't know, uh, pick up a stray thought or two from Charles or Eric in the time that they've been all living on Krakoa? Or maybe even before that? I think the gimmick here is that Xavier and Magneto maybe voluntarily forgot that Mora about the whole Mora thing until she reemerged. Like, I mean, they knew her, clearly, but they only knew what we readers knew for all those years, right? Like that she was a human ally based out of Muir Island, a sort of kind of love interest for Charles, and also the mother of Proteus. Maybe they didn't know about the mutant bits or just allowed themselves to forget about them until now-ish, until Mora was ready to let them know. Maybe. But, I mean, Emma is still Emma, and she's about as powerful as the story needs her to be at any given time, so I could totally buy into any sort of reveal here. But let's play this out for the Krakoa era. In Giant Size Magneto, Eric dines with Emma and then goes off to buy her the Faroe Island, right? Xavier even brings that up here today, that Eric had a hand in helping Emma arrange the upcoming Hellfire Gala, and I don't think that was by accident. I do wonder if Emma may have gleaned a little bit of information during uh, that little uh, that little mission they had together. And, you you know, we, we also saw Magneto get drunk over an X-Force or Wolverine, one of the Percy books. Which, mm, I mean, as one of the two guys on the island keeping this tremendous and seismic secret, probably not the best look in hindsight, is it? I, I didn't think of it then. But having Magneto get sloppy drunk to the point where he basically passes out, that's kind of a matter of national security, isn't it? I mean, he might be passed out, Emma walks by and's like, okay, let's see what he's thinking. He's not guarding himself from anything, and it's just, oh, well, there you go. Now, whatever the case, whether Emma knows or just caught a stray thought and has, you know, suspicions, that all remains to be seen. But what she's doing here is definitely with purpose. I mean, this isn't a coincidence. She said it right there. She wanted to see Charles and Eric's reaction, and uh, they didn't disappoint. Also, again, the appearance of Mora's statue can't be ignored either. Uh, she's wearing that big old floppy blossom hat, which I'm pretty sure we've only seen her wearing in her Hoxpox flashback scene with Xavier. So that's 
gotta mean something, right? Now, uh, having Proteus, Mora's son, as part of the unveiling was a nice touch as well. I could have used a Banshee appearance, but we can't have everything, I guess. Um, so what does this mean? Um, I guess all we can do is theorize, right? I'm now looking forward to the Hellfire Gala even more, because part of me thinks um, <laughs> the night might just end with Emma presenting a surprise guest of honor. Which, if true, may shift the power structure of Krakoa a little bit. Which, again, if true, might turn the original mission statement of this era right on its ear. I think we're headed for some answers. Finally, huh? And uh, I can't wait. Overall, I'd say this is definitely one, if you're following these books, this is one you're going to want to have in your collection. Um, A great story, great build, great art, and finally... The appearance of actual movement on this era's overarching story. So, uh, you know, we don't get Amora mentioned very often. You know, she's always looming, but we don't hear about her, and we we certainly don't see her all that often. So, to get this here, it's a uh, it, it's gonna you know it's gonna make you open your eyes a bit. So, had a really good time with it, and I think uh, I think you all will as well. But uh, that's all I got to say about that. I'm sure we're gonna be coming back to this issue. Many times over the course of the next several episodes here as we uh, learn more and uh, reflect But for now, let's hop into the mailbag here We actually have a letter today And you know, I was was assuming that the mailbag was going to dry up as we got closer to being current Uh, I know a lot of folks are following this via Marvel Unlimited And Lord only knows what their uh, release structure or uh, methodology is over there. I hear that uh, sometimes it's drips and drabs, other times it's a gush. So I'm just going to have to accept for now that uh, the mail is going to slow up just a bit. But uh, we do have a letter, and it's from our friend Andrew Franklin. He's talking about cable number seven and eight. He says, we knew it was going to happen, but I still groaned a little when we saw that strife is back. I'm just glad it's not a teen strife. The angst and melodrama would have been too much. And yeah, it's it's so weird. Um, I feel like we spent so much of the uh, late 90s and into the 2000s trying to get away from, you know, Cable and Strife being, you know, joined at the hip. They moved Cable in, like, other directions than just being constantly taunted by, uh, by his, you know, darker half here, his clone. And it feels like uh, of late here we're kind of... Uh, it's very reductionist, right? We're just looking at, like, the hits. It's... We know Cable, we know Strife, so we have to have Cable and Strife together. Um, I, I know we were all expecting to see him eventually, and uh, yeah, here we be, right? Um, like I mentioned when we talked about this issue, I'm pretty sure Strife was one of the threats in the prior uh, X-Force volume, uh, the one that had Kid Cable in the uh, in the leader chair, at least I think he was leading. Uh, I know he was part of the team, or he was part of the book anyway, but... Uh, I did see Strife on some of those covers, so feels like we just can't get away from them. It's, uh, this is just going to be the way things are. Now, Andrew continues. It's a shame that this series is canceled, but it feels like the creative team was given enough notice because these two issues really felt focused on advancing the plot briskly. I thought Domino's powers were used very well in issue 8, letting Cable stumble upon the villain's lair by dumb luck. It probably saved Duggan about an issue of Investigation Plot. And the whole bit with the space rock was a neat showcase of her luck. I think that even Strife will be written well by Duggan once he properly shows up. I have little doubt that Duggan will be able to uh, work his magic on Strife here. And, you know, I never had a problem 
with Strife. Um, I thought Strife was a decent enough character, a nice little twist. I could do with a little bit less of him. I mean, I like the Joker too, but can we please give him a week off? You know, he doesn't need to bother Batman every single week. But uh, I'm 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 think Duggan will do a fantastic job here, and uh, I think advancing the plot briskly is the best way to put this here because I said it felt truncated but not rushed, or it felt truncated but not. Uh, not you know overly compressed here, but I think the way you described it is much better here. It just the plot is advancing briskly, which is to say it's it feels organic. It feels it feels about the right speed, right? Uh, as you mentioned here, we probably would have gotten an issue of cable, you know, cable PI, and uh, I'm not necessarily sure that's something we need. So this is a this is an okay pace for us to be uh, going out on here. Andrew continues. I think it's interesting that the topic of clones has been popping up in some of the X-Books lately, and now Cable has to deal with his own army of clones. What would happen to a batch of Cable clones that were rescued from Strife? We know that the resurrection for them is a sticky question, but are they allowed to live on Krakoa? What if the clones are a bunch of babies? I wonder if we'll get another piece of the clone puzzle by the end of this series. And that's a great question that I didn't even think of as we were reading this here, because... You know, Domino didn't, uh, she didn't take any prisoners, right? But what if she did? Would they live on Krakoa? Would they be part of Krakoa? Would they just be sent to the hole? I mean, what do they do with a, uh, with a new clone? And I mean, we talked about that briefly in the uh, discussion of X-Factor, where we heard, or where we learned that uh, maybe Prodigy didn't die. And we asked, you know, what happens if the other Prodigy comes back, the original Prodigy? How do they handle that? I mean, he's not a mutant anymore, but there's an option to make him a mutant. Do they just let him live his life quietly as a as a depowered mutant while they have their own version? It's it's a it's a question that I think I think we're going to get an answer to, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Now, Andrew continues. He says, "I wonder how the council will feel about time displaced versions of characters. Do Kid Cable and Old Man Cable count as the same person?" If Old Man Cable replaces Kid Cable at the end of the series, like some think will happen, what happens to Kid Cable's Cerebro backups? And will either of the Cables remember being Venomized in Sword, or will they just ignore that crossover like I am? <laughs> I, I said this uh, when we were talking about the, uh, the King and Black issues here. I was like, yeah, no, we're never going to talk about this again, are we? I mean, we're not talking about Empire. We're not talking about whatever the hell came before Empire. We're not talking about anything. It's, uh, the, these, these crossover events, these mass bloated events, they're only topical as they're going on. We don't reflect on them the way we used to. I mean, and some of the old crossovers were, like, really not that great. Things like Atlantis Attacks or the Evolutionary War. But they're remembered more fondly. They're, well, actually, I shouldn't say they're remembered more fondly. They're just plain remembered. Where, I mean, has anybody said anything about Empire? Could anybody tell me what came before Empire? I, I just don't know. Now, as for the question here, I'm wondering, and maybe this is just because I have uh, Extermination fresh in my mind here, but I wonder if we get the Extermination-style ending. You know, if Old Man Cable does, in fact, replace Kid Cable, maybe he'll get all of the memories, just like the original five did. You know, if you, if you didn't read Extermination or follow Ex-Lapsination, which is available in the archives, uh, that ended with the original five going, the original five time-displaced characters going back to the past. But when they reached a certain point in the timeline, all of their memories went into the 
adult original five. So, and we're actually going to be talking a bit about this next episode when Cyclops has his little adventure with the champions because adult Cyclops never joined the champions, but when he came back as a time displaced teen, he did join the champions. But adult Cyclops now knows he was part of the champions, so it's a uh, it's sticky. But I'm guessing that that's probably the easiest way to reconcile um, these adventures if, in fact, Old Man Cable does come back to uh, reclaim his, uh, his name and his pouches, I guess. Now, Andrew continues, It's a shame that the festival derailed the story, but I'm still not sure what the point of this series will ultimately be, but I'm still enjoying it. So until we get a young and old Cable team-up book called Cables, make my next lapsed. I wonder if they'll just call it Cable and Cable. You know, we had Cable and Deadpool, then we had Deadpool and Cable. Maybe it'll just be Cable and Cable. And uh, we can just we can always just guess which Cable comes first, uh, per which issue we're reading, I suppose. But uh, you're right. The uh, the festival did indeed uh, derail this one here. Uh, as we talked about with Cable number 8, we have Old Man Cable in that Another Time, Another Place, uh, you know, dealy, and... I couldn't remember the last time we talked about that. I know we did, but I, I think it's been since issue two, which that's a long, long time ago. It's uh, definitely something that did a disservice to the flow of this book here because we had to set every, like, the entire story was, was just put to the side so we can get, you know, the Galadorian Space Knights, so we can get the sword, so we can go to the satellite. So much of, uh, this book really didn't get a chance to do what it needed to do to establish itself. And, I mean, you launch a book called Cable in 2020 or 20... Yeah, it was 2020, I suppose. People are going to have a reaction to that, right? They're either going to be like, ooh, a Cable book, or they're going to go, ooh, a Cable book? And I know I know what side I uh, fell on when uh, we got the uh, news that we were getting a Cable. It was like, oh, I got to buy Cable now? But I'm a completionist, so Marvel didn't have to worry about me. It's the other folks out there, the casuals, who uh, might see a cable book on the shelf and be like, nope, not for me. <laughs> and uh, it's, you know, one of those uh, self-fulfilling prophecies at that point. But um, I'd like to thank you so much, Andrew, for writing in and chatting me up about those issues of cable. That'll do it for the mailbag here, but we do have some, well, not so much breaking news. We have news. Uh, we have news, and it's news that I missed. If you're listening to the last couple of episodes, I've been filling us in, or at least chronicling, because I'm sure everybody knows these things. If you're listening to this show, you probably know uh, what's going on in the world of uh, of the X-Men election. But I figure it's a good place to chronicle it, and uh, hey, it'll extend the, uh, the runtime of this episode by like, I don't know, 75 seconds. But... We do have an election update. It's actually the second update here, and one that hit uh, Marvel's Twitter, I think, uh, a few days ago. I don't follow Marvel's Twitter. I really don't. I don't know how to use the front page of Twitter anyway, but uh, I certainly don't follow Marvel's because I'm assuming most of it is about their television and movie stuff, uh, both of which I really don't care about. But our second election update removes two more from contention as the last member of the uh, new X-Men team. And we've got Boom Boom and Tempo both out. As if, I mean, come on. So now we're down to the final four. And uh, the, the one I voted for is still in there. The one I'm sure is going to win is still in there. But uh, let's go through them here. The final four consist of Banshee, who I voted for, Polaris, who's going to win, Cannonball, and Sunspot. 
I'm guessing over the next couple of days we're going to, you know, maybe drop one or two more of these. And, uh, you know, I wonder if they're going to spoil it before the book comes out. I mean, it is Marvel, and if uh, I guess if USA Today has a slow news day, they might uh, rattle Marvel's cage, and uh, Marvel will give them whatever they want to get that uh, few minutes of mainstream publicity. But uh, I hope not. I hope it is a uh, is something that they hold on to for the for the Hellfire Gala here. But that'll do it for the news. Really, not a whole heck of a lot going on. The news sites I look at are more interested in uh, CGC auctions now than actual comics news. So. Uh, if you guys know me, you know I really couldn't care less about CGC uh, auctions, so uh, I have very little use for those sites. But that'll do it for the news here. If you guys have a news tip you'd like to send along we can discuss on the show, please feel free to do that. Also, if you just want to talk about whatever you want, do that as well. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, where uh, right now I'm working on a series of articles where we're going to take a look at the last days of Maura McTaggart. Uh, You know, the Dream's End arc from uh, the year about 2000-ish. I'm taking my time with this one because I'm trying to make this a fairly inclusive project where I'll kind of be annotating and also... uh, you know, talking about some of the characters that are involved in this. It's going to be basically a cosmic treadmill uh, script by the end of the day here. If uh, folks are familiar with uh, Reggie and my uh, old cosmic treadmill show here, chock full of information. I'm hoping to do the same for this series of uh, Mora articles, but they'll be coming very, very soon, I hope. So yeah, that is Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Now, the Facebook group is 90s X-Men. And feel free to sign up and share all your thoughts there, uh, like our friend Ed Moore did uh, sharing the uh, election results that I missed. So thank you for that, Ed, and uh, thanks for ev- to everybody for uh, taking part in the conversations over there. That is, again, 90s X-Men on Facebook. We're just shy of 50 members, so let's see if we can uh, get that over. And uh, finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you could check out chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere you find noise. But that'll do it for today. I want to thank you all so much for letting me be part of your day. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Behind the wheel of a large automobile And you may find yourself
myself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 171 of x Last. It's uh, crazy to consider, but we're just uh, getting real close to another milestone episode here. Uh, I'm sure there will be nothing special to discuss during our 175th show, but hey, it's a, it's a milestone. And in this life, there's so little to celebrate, we got to take what we can get. Speaking of which, uh, today we've got an issue of X-Men. It's X-Men Volume 5, number 18. The, uh, what, third to last issue? Fourth to last issue? I don't know. It's, it's ending soon. It's uh, April 2021 cover date. The story's called Inside the Vault. Written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Mahmoud Azrar. Colors, Sonny Go. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Bisa White, Sabolsky. I feel like I said all of that out of cadence. Um, cover price $4, went on sale February 24 of 2021. Now, we open with a shot of the exterior of the vault. If you remember, it's the erect uh, seated sentinel from uh, Cassandra Nova's attack on Genosha way back in New X-Men 114-ish. Uh, now, Sink is delivering the narration here, and he veers into the purple a time or two, but mostly keeps it on point. Now he, along with X-23, or Wolverine, and Darwin, have been sent inside to determine the level of threat that the children of the vault might pose to mutantdom. They are kind of like post-humans, and of course we know they are a no-no. The vault itself is kind of an incubatory system here, where the children are waiting things out, while evolving and advancing so that one day they might be able to take over the world. Which again, is a hoxpox no-no. Makes me wonder if uh, Mike Carey, uh, the creator of The Children of the Vault here, might have gleaned some of this from John Byrne's take on The Promise from X-Men The Hidden Years. And that also featured Tad Carter, the sort of kind of first ever Marvel mutant. No, probably not. Uh, nobody nobody read that. And if they did, they'd already forgotten about it because, uh, hell, I know I did. Um, anyway, we're inside the vault, and it looks like uh, like a massive city. Sink's narration goes on to explain why it is these three, in particular, were chosen for this mission. You see, their unique powers would make them the most likely to be able to deal with the time dilation inside the vault. As we know, Darwin, as his name might suggest, can rapidly adapt to any situation. Sink is able to piggyback any mutant ability, you know, he copies other people's abilities. And X-23 is all about survival, so... Stands to reason they'd be a good trio to send, despite the fact that I don't believe... I'm not even sure any of these characters ever met before this mission. Now, when they went into the vault, way back in, I want to say, X-Men number 5, which we discussed way back in episode 42. It was October 16th of 2020. Boy, we were all so young back then. Now, when they went inside, I assumed that they were going to be gone for like one panel. Maybe one page but then return altered and or aged, right? Like a moment in real time is actually a number of years inside the vault sort of thing. Where, yes, we'd eventually learn about what happened inside, but these three would already be back, if you follow. It's kind of like how they showed Spider-Man with his new black costume in Amazing 252, 
but we didn't find out exactly how he got it until like almost a year later during Secret Wars, right? Because Secret Wars happened in a blink, but the story was told over the course of a year. It would not seem that this is the case here. Ev, Laura, and uh, whatever the hell Darwin's real first name is, uh, they've been gone for a good while in real time, so Lord only knows how long that is in vault time. Anyway, our three heroes plan out their mission, and we get the impression that Sink might just have the hot pants for Laura. They enter an elevator, which takes them down into the vault proper. Then, info page. Now, this is Sink's patient file from uh, Cecilia Reyes, where she posits that Everett came back more powerful than he was before he died, which we're going to see in action before the end of this very issue. She suggests that it might be a secondary mutation before stopping herself and claiming that this power surge might eventually be evident in many of the Krakoan resurrectees. For now, she's going to continue observing and reporting on this phenomenon, and we will learn a little bit more about that as we go. Finally, our double-page spread of roll call and cred here. We got Wolverine, who is X-23, of course, Darwin, and Sink. Just the three of them. We resume with Serafina interfacing with the vault computer, which kind of looks like a wiry mother brain from Metroid, uh, the Captain N, the Game Master version especially. Now, she's hooked up to some wires, Serafina, that is, is hooked up to some wires and tested, and we learn that she's now level 2. The computer then grades her mission, which I think we caught her in the act of during X-Men number 1, as a failure. Now, and then it grades their threats as follows. Homo superior is primary, the non-post-humans are secondary, which I would assume just means humans. Maybe I'm wrong, I don't know. The computer then deduces that the children will have to be at level 3 before taking on the mutants. The rest of the children lament the fact that they've got to hop back into the pot and cook some more before they can do whatever it is that they're meant to do. We see the other four children, so uh, let's meet them. Uh, To do so, we're going to have to go to the Marvel Wiki, uh, because as much as Hickman loves his info pages, we don't actually get one here. Um, And to be completely honest, Serafina is the only one of them I can name on site. So let's go through them. We've got, uh, first we've got Sangre, uh, the former leader of the Children of the Vault. Um, His gimmick here is he can produce bubbles that surround his enemy's head. And uh, he's the white-skinned guy with all the black circles all over his body, uh, for if you want to, you know, Get him by sight. We got Perro. He's the team's muscle, or maybe it's Perro. Um, he can affect gravity. He's portrayed as like a big muscly dude with a short mohawk. We got Aguja. Uh, it's a blonde woman in green. Her powers are nebulously energy-based. We don't know exactly what they are. Then Fuego, and he looks kind of like Ghost Rider. Um, probably the easiest of the five to point out in a lineup. His powers, as his name and flaming head might suggest, have to do with fire. Now, the computer indicates that there's an anomaly in the vault. And so the five children head to the elevator to meet it head-on. Only when the elevator door opens, ain't nobody there. Fuego wasted a whole bunch of energy filling the tube with fire, and just then our heroes leap from some rafters above and attack. And I'm pretty sure Laura actually kills Serafina here. What follows is, uh, well, fight scene. Sink's narration waxes on about memory and how things we remember are context-based. And that's a pretty basic idea, though in fairness, it's one that I don't think many of us actually stop to think about. Sink is burned up pretty badly by Fuego during the fracas. 
Darwin is bubble-headed by sangre, uh, but adapts to be able to breathe, Sink then discovers that he can copy the powers of Fuego, a non-mutant, which is the first time he's able to do this. Now, if you remember, Dr. Reyes said he came back more powerful, and uh, the children are fairly shocked by this. And it looks like just a panel or two later that Sink has barbecued Sangre and Pero. Aguja tells the heroes that they'll pay for that and blows herself up. Now, our closing shot is of the city with a great big green explosion going off. Now, this is all happening the first day our heroes entered the vault, by the way. And you might be wondering, did our heroes survive? Well, uh, besides Sink's narration completely undercutting the cliffhanger, uh, that's going to have to wait till next time. But yes, they did. (laughs) We got an info page to wrap things up where Professor X waives the murder-no-man law for this mission, placing it under force protocol. You know, X-force protocol. They could do whatever the hell they want. Now, this is another case where they list the law as murder-no-man, but discuss it as though it says murder-no-human. And they justify, you know, waiving this or loosening it because the children of the vault are not human, at least not anymore. But, uh... That's where we leave this issue of X-Men. Next time out, we're going to dip back into our look at Marvel Voices. We're going to take a look at Marvel Voices, Indigenous Voices, next time. Uh, There are a few stories in there that we will be focusing on. But uh, let's uh, first talk about this issue of X-Men. So where do we start? Um, Well, um, I suppose I should get it out of the way that this was an absolutely gorgeous issue. Asrar and Go are killing it here. Everything looks amazing. It's just an awesome, awesome-looking book. Uh, as far as the story's concerned, uh, I mean, I didn't dislike it, but it still left me kind of wanting. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I was holding my breath waiting for the Children of the Vault story to resume, because that would be a lie. Uh, but it's been 12 issues and 13 months since the first part of this story took place. Now, of course, we can blame at least two of those months on the COVID hiatus, and maybe another two on the Festival of Swords, but still, this issue was a long time coming, and it was structured not so much in the, like, Claremontian bubbling subplot sort of way. This just kind of feels like a story they forgot about needing to update us on until now. And yes, I know that's not actually the case, but... It just kind of feels like a half-baked afterthought. I feel like, and I really hate to say this because I have absolutely no right or insight, but to me, it feels like Hickman just isn't all that interested in writing the X-Men. It's like he's doing it because he agreed to, not because he actually wants to. And again, I have zero basis for making to be making a statement like that. Uh, only the way I feel when I read his work. Oh, let me let me walk that back just a just a step or two here. I feel like he was very passionate about Hoxpox. Uh, it's just that most things after that feel I don't want to say phoned in because they're certainly not phoned in. Just uh, less passionate, maybe. Just less. Uh, there's less investment in these stories. And of course, there have been great stories that he's written since Hoxpox. Uh, some of our very or some of my very favorite issues of this run here. We had issue 6 with Mystique's POV on the Orcus Forge. I thought that was a wonderful issue here. We found out so much information, so many questions we didn't even know we should ask. Um, 
Just the next issue after that, issue seven, introduced the Crucible. Awesome issue. Awesome issue that gave us just so much food for thought. Everything else, though, just feels like either an attempted comedy or, I mean, say it with me, high-concept ideas. You know, uh, all these high-concept ideas sound interesting, but they don't feel like they're actually going anywhere. You know, X-Men, this volume, this series, has, for the most part, just been a series of part ones, where part two may or may not actually ever happen. It just feels very, very incomplete. Now, I thought about going through this run of X-Men, as well as Giant Size, issue by issue, to just like point out some things here, but I don't think it'll matter. Anytime I give a criticism of Hickman's work, there's always a contingent who ats me. Is that what the kids call it? Atting somebody? Uh, and they at me with two words. Hickman style. Which, I mean, isn't much of a defense, it's just a statement. It doesn't imply a level of quality, at least on its face. Now, early early during this run of X-Lapse, I would engage with a few folks who would reply to me with Hickman style as their comeback. Which was dumb of me, because nobody in the history of the internet has ever changed anybody else's mind. Not, Not that I was trying to, I just wanted to qualify my opinion. I mean, if I went to a restaurant and ordered a Hickman style steak, and then 18 hours later the waiter hands me a pink gum eraser with the word steak written on it, well, I, I might not be able to criticize what it is if that's what it is, but I might have cause to at least raise an eyebrow, right? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I've lost the plot here. Uh, now, speaking of losing the plot here, let's discuss the story. Uh, what little of it there was. Uh, we learn here that the children of the vault are slowly powering up, but are not yet at the level that they need to be in order to take over the world and take down mutants. But now they're all dead. Um... I'm going to assume that the Vault computer has its own resurrection or cloning process, considering that the same children make the cover of the next issue. Not that covers matter, but I... It would be weird if they didn't show up next issue. Um, We got Sync's powers. They've changed a bit, and I think that might just be my main takeaway from this issue. I feel like his powers were among the more interesting back during Generation X, but he seldom seemed to use them. At least in a uh, like a proactive or an intriguing sort of way. I mean, sure, he'd be shown running around with a rainbow over his head, but I don't think it, you know, he or it got all that much focus. Though, in fairness, he may have had the least exciting look of the entire team. Right? He was just a normal dude, normal-looking fella, who, when stood next to guys like Chamber or Skin or Penance or even Jubilee, kind of blends into the background. Then again, in fairness, it's been ages since I read a lot of that early Generation X stuff, so I might just be remembering wrong in order to, like, subconsciously suit my narrative. Who knows? Um, what else we have here? Lifting the kill-no-man or kill-no-human law. It definitely makes sense to me in this case. You know, if what we know about Mora's sixth life, I think it was, it was the last one that they shared with us there, we know that post-humanity is kind of the thing, Right. We're not sure if the children are the same post-humans as the ones who took over during Mora's sixth life, but it stands to reason that Xavier and Mora would want to do whatever they could to stop them in their tracks, just in case, right? You know, kind of nip it in the bud here. So yeah, maybe maybe this was my main takeaway, and uh, I don't know what it says that my main takeaway was a friggin' info page, but uh, I guess it, it, it is what it is. 
I think... I mean, I think that's probably all I got to say about this one. It was mostly a fight scene with just a few little bits, uh, you know, bits and bobs dropped into into the lore here. Really sorry to come down so blah about this, but uh, you know, I tell you what, I can't. This volume can't wrap up quick enough for me here. I'm ready. I'm ready for Duggan to take over and to and to move us forward. Right? I, I'm very very ready for that. Here, it's. You know, feels like um, if we go back to the end of Dawn of X, right? As we were getting closer and closer to uh, to the Festival of Swords here, to X of Tens, a lot of water treading, right? A lot of just running in place, killing, burning off pages, so we can get to where we need to get to when story can finally happen again. Reign of X, this this stage of Reign of X, I think Reign of X is going to be multi acts. You know, uh, right now we're kind of just running in place until the Hellfire Gala. And I feel like the Hellfire Gala is going to be the thing. And then the month after the Hellfire Gala, we're going to just get, like, really, really awesome stories. And then as we get closer to whatever the next act end is going to be, we're going to... I mean, this is just comics. This isn't a uh, an X-Men problem. This isn't a Hickman problem. This is just a current year comics thing. We, we kind of go into lame duck territory in between or at the tail end right before a crossover or an event or a milestone. So this is just more of that here. And, uh, I mean, this might just be an indictment on the X-lapsed process because if I were to read this and never think about it again, I would have enjoyed it. You know, um, there was action. There was a little bit of information. Really, what more can you ask for? But I am a guy who spends... Many, many hours with each of these books, so this might just be a, an X-lapsed problem here where I'm kind of just scrutinizing it to the point where it really doesn't need to be scrutinized. But, uh, I mean, it is what it is, right? But uh, <laughs> that's all I got to say. You know, at the risk of just repeating myself, that's all I got to say about the issue. Now, before we cut out of here, I want to do something a little bit different. I think it was, I think it was last episode. Uh, I got a letter from Evan who had reminded me of... Uh, the Mr. Sinister Thunderbird DNA thing, which reminded me of how much fun we had discussing the Sinister Secrets pages early, early, early in this run here. And it's been almost almost two years, right? I mean, it was the end of the summer of 2019. Here we're about to go into the summer 2021, at least in Arizona, we're getting into the summer. Um, but it's been a long time since we've revisited these things here, and I thought it would be fun to go through... I think there are 15 of them, but I think it would be fun to go through the 15 and see what has played out and what maybe hasn't played out yet. So let's do that here. Sinister Secrets Revisited. Now, the first ones are from Power of Powers of X number 4, which we covered in X-Lapsed episode 8, way back in the day. Now, Secret 1 is, and, and I'm just going to read these out here and then we'll discuss them. He's trying to pretend that no one noticed he was wearing red shoes, but this truly sinister sinister isn't fooling anyone. Now, like I said, we recently discussed this. Uh, it was theorized to have been playing off a coloring error in X-Men number 94 or thereabouts, in which Thunderbird was depicted as wearing red shoes. Now, a sinister secret revealed on this very page states that Sinister got his mutant gene from Thunderbird's DNA. So that's something we did just recently discuss, and it's a very, very fun theory. 
And it is worth noting that Mr. Sinister was depicted as wearing red shoes in Cable number 6, which uh, we covered... Uh, I, I probably should have wrote down the episode we covered it in, but it wasn't too terribly long ago. Uh, secret 2. And speaking of fashion, the Whisper Network has turned into a roar regarding the return of a trend-setting mutant who was cut down in his prime. Now, back when we discussed this the first time, I theorized that this might have to do with Jumbo Carnation, and yeah... As we've seen, mostly in Marauders, Jumbo Carnation is definitely a thing again. And with the upcoming Hellfire Gala, he will be more front and center than probably ever before, and probably ever again. Now, that is Secret 2. Secret 3 is... Years ago, a deceased redhead pretender made a pact with the devil. I mean, that's gotta be Madeline Pryor, whose story we saw play out to its... End, at least for now, in the first arc of Hellions And I suppose we could joke that maybe What they're talking about here is like an amalgamation of Mary Jane and the Scarlet Witch You know, the red hair, uh, one made the pact with the devil And the other they call a pretender all the time But I, yeah, I don't, don't think that's it at all Secret number four While every Sinister has been busy wondering how they might be affected by current events Almost no one noticed what washed ashore a word of advice to all things sinister, don't embrace the revelry, or there'll be, there won't be anything for you to celebrate. And this one's a little unclear here, but I think it might be a reference to that Wetworks team that we saw in X-Force number one. I mean, they did interrupt a party before killing Professor X, so I wonder if that is uh, what they're discussing here. Secret five. He's the best there is at what he does. She's married with a kid. The husband knows exactly what's going on, but who is he to point the finger? With what, what we know, uh, this is most likely a reference to the open relationship going on at Summer House. Um, and the husband, Scott, can't point fingers because, I mean, he was unfaithful himself. Secret Six. Hey, that was a, that was a comic book, wasn't it? Uh, everyone believed that the plan of this progerian mutant with a, si- with a secret sinister ties was foiled, but little did the gifted ones know that the destroyed samples were switched out beforehand. Now, as posited the first time we discussed this, the progerian mutant in question is Ernst. She's that you know, young mutant who looks kind of like an old lady, or exactly like an old lady. Now, what this is is a callback to a story from the Spider-Man and the X-Men miniseries from several years back, wherein Sinister used Ernst to gather mutant DNA, which, from this Sinister secret, we know Mr. Sinister still has. And we also know that he's got a black market clone farm going on, so, I mean, that all stands to reason. Secret 7. Two brothers jumped out of a plane, and for the longest time, until he was discovered, many wondered if there was a third. If we told you there were more, would you believe me? Probably not. I mean, of course, this is a third Summers Brothers reference. Um, That third brother, of course, was revealed as being Vulcan during Deadly Genesis. And now we know from X-Men Legends that there was, in fact, more than three, because Adam X is their half-brother. So maybe we do need to cover X-Men Legends on the show. Huh. Didn't think that was going to happen, but uh, maybe... Secret 8. For years, this fittest of all mutant has routinely surrounded himself with a particular numbered entourage. These hangers-on stick around for a while until they are eventually replaced with newer, more exciting members. 
What most people don't know is that if the original members returned, these pretenders would be dropped so fast their heads would spin. And, I mean, this is certainly a mention to uh, Apocalypse's original Four Horsemen, you know, his children, who we met uh, pretty, pretty well during the Festival of Swords here. Secret Nine. They say the kids are all right, but all is not right in Paradise. This non-couple couple has been apart so long, friends are expecting that when they see each other again, fireworks are going to ensue. Is the universe ready? Judging by how unprepared everyone was for what's happened so far, we kind of doubt it. And I think when we talked about this the first time, just the mention, the mere mention of young and fireworks was, uh, oh, it's Jubilee, right? I really have no idea what they're talking about here. If anybody has any ideas, or if I'm missing something completely, blatantly obvious, please <laughs> let me know your thoughts. Secret 10. Which brainwashed mutant sinister was replaced long before a certain bald somebody knew and has been in on the game for almost as long as the game was being played? Shh. That's another one I'm not so sure about. Uh... Now, Sinister Secrets Revisited Continued. Uh, this is from Marauders Number 1. We discussed this one in X-Lapsed Episode 14. Secret 11. Wisp is on the wind that a certain mutant undergoing a new phase of their life is sitting on quite an offer. It won't last, but I wonder if they'd be surprised to know they were not the first nor the second choice. Perhaps the third time's the charm. Now... Call Me Kate was chosen as the Red Queen of the Hellfire Corps, or Corp, I guess. Uh, she wasn't the first choice, because that was Storm, and Storm turned it down. I don't know who the second choice was. Did, uh, did they mention it and I just forgot? Or I mean, It probably doesn't even matter. Um, now, the secret suggests that this won't last. I'm not sure if this is a reference to Call Me Kate's death in Marauders number 6, or if she's going to be either ousted or quit sometime yet to come. And it almost begs the question here, does this mean that Sinister can see the future? I don't know. Secret 12. Humanity's health and well-being was never a popular topic around Boss Sinister. But now that Krakoan medicines are keeping us afloat, we probably ought to pay attention to the changing of the tides at Hellfire Bay. We hear that one of the seas to be carefully navigated is deep and red. So more foreshadowing of Call Me Kate's death, maybe? Um, so again, I gotta ask, is Sinister something of a precog? Because I thought we weren't allowed to have those. Or maybe this is just Scuttlebutt. Maybe he just is... Uh, he knows what Shaw's up to because Shaw told him. I, I really, really don't know. This might just be a behind the uh, a bit behind the scenes, between the panels sort of a uh, revelation. Secret thirteen. Speaking of the black and white, not everyone got their invite. Quite a faux pas. I hope there's not a fight. Now there have been recently some rumblings about Harry Leland, so maybe this is a reference to him. Uh, might even be a reference to Donald Pierce, who we know is now part of the Verendi Madriporian government. You know, he was part of Hellfire and uh, doesn't look like he was invited to, uh, you know, to the reunion here. Secret number 14. Humans wearing sheets always lead to trouble. Who are these kooky new looky-loos crowding our gates? I'm guessing that's the Order of X cult, probably. Secret 15. 
We hear the slow boat is built to catch all eyes, but it's the one under the radar that's really turning heads. Now, I feel like this might be a reference to Christian Frost's not a ship ship or not a boat boat, which always seems to be uh, taking different forms. Uh, sometimes it is a boat. Sometimes it's a UFO. Uh, I mean, every time we see it, it's we're told it's not what it looks like. And I think we... I think we theorized, like, way back in the day that this might have something to do with the Academy X-era character Mercury. Uh, just from, you know, the shimmeriness of this, uh, of whatever Christian Frost is calling his boat. I don't remember what it was exactly. Uh, now that's it for the ones in uh, Marauders number 1, but we have Sinister Secrets continued yet again in Marauders number 8, which was X-Lapsed episode... Something or another, I don't know um, Secret 16 Shade for one I respect the power move, but come on If I can make a meeting, anyone can Come on, Kay And, uh, you know, at this point Kitty hasn't been making quiet council meetings Because she's been far too busy being dead uh, And this was being kept a hellfire secret at the time So I'm guessing that's what this is a reference to And this is, of course, Marauders number 8 Two issues after Kate dies Secret 17 Waitlisted by Jumbo, a few of my thirsty patrons quenching thirst have been quizzical about a certain quirky Q that can't quite catch his quarry. We hear he's blaming his wardrobe. It does make the man. Perhaps it's time for a fabulous cape. Well, just a handful of episodes ago, we did see quirky Quentin Choir trying on some new clothes at Jumbo's boutique, all the while talking about how he's kind of tired of dying all the time. So, maybe... You know, clothes do make the man. Sinister mentions fabulous capes here, and yeah, you know, it's been pretty well established to this point that the man is uh, a little bit obsessed. Secret number 18. Make more mutants, they said. Now be honest, who did you have crossing the finish line first? Probably a pretty redhead or a blonde. Well, nobody got this one right. Congrats to the former Stinger. Good luck with, the, with that baby bump. If the kid turns out to be interesting, bring him by Krakoa. And uh, yes, Sinister's right. Nobody got this one right because nobody cares about Stinger or Pauly. Omerta. Omerta. Is that what we called him? Omerta? I don't know. Now, this story is, of course, still playing out in the pages of Cable. Uh, the child was kidnapped by the Order of X, who turned out to be clones of Cable created by Strife or something. Secret number 19. The final secret. Mira, Mira on the wall, who are the grossest mutants of them all? No, not the Morlocks. Don't punch down, muties. Well, it's not for me to say, but keep your eyes on a swivel, and you may spot them when you think you're seeing double. And this one, I mean, the Sinister Secret, was immediately revealed as being Fenris on the very same page. And yeah, we know they suck. So <laughs> that's uh, about it. But uh, those are the 19 Sinister Secrets here. If anybody has any thoughts on those, please... Feel free to reach out. There were a few I didn't... I still don't know the answers to. Uh, they either haven't been explained, or I'm just a little bit more dense than I give myself credit for. But that'll do it for today. If uh, you'd like to reach out about anything, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk to us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. Today we're talking about times we walked away from the X-Books uh, and why. And uh, it's a pretty fun conversation. And uh, 
It's just waiting for your input. But uh, that, again, that is 90s X-Men on Facebook. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere you find noise. But uh, that'll do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for sharing some time with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 179 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I need to start with a disclaimer here. Um, I'm not sure how many folks listen to the Generation X-Lapsed show that I have going on Sundays for the time being. Uh, if the numbers are anything to go by, uh, not terribly many people are interested in X. Um, I'm sorry, Generation X. But when I opened that show, um, I had mentioned that... Uh, I might sound a little bit uh, grunty uh, in these next few days here. I threw my back out uh, the other day, and uh, it's getting a little bit better in as far as uh, the pain is concerned. It's a little duller than, uh, than it was uh, at the outset. Unfortunately, it's also uh, resulting in spasming. So um, if I sound weird, I'm going to try to edit everything out that sounds weird, but if I miss something where I sound like a little grunty... Well, that is why. So, uh, with all that said, uh, we've got a pretty big episode today here. Um, we're going to be talking about a comic, and we're also, since this is the first of the month, we're going to be taking a look at the previews catalog for next month. So I will stop a-doing for now and uh, get right into it. Today we're going back to King in Black. This is Sword Volume 2, Number 4, had a May 2021 cover date. Stories called The Krakoan Sun, written by Al Ewing, with art by Valerio Shidi. Colors, Mardi Gracia. Letters, VCs, Ariana Mar. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Bisa White Sapolsky. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale St. Patrick's Day, March 17th of 2021. Now we open with Frenzy floating through the symbiote void. She treats this as though she's in one of those, like, 
weightless, senseless uh, egg thingies that we see like rich people go into on TV, those sensory deprivation chambers, you know. From here, we hop outside where Corrupted Cable uh, rants a whole lot. Uh, he calls this land anti-Krakoa, and he really uh, takes interest in making fun of Manifold. Um, I'll just wait until he sees him in his Hellfire Gala outfit. Now, as this is going on, the symbiote goop devours Sunfire and Fabian Cortez, so they're dead. How about that? Next up, double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. We got quite a few characters here. Frenzy, Manifold, Fabian Cortez, Abigail Brand, Wizkid, Mentalo, Hope, Egg, Tempest, Elixir, Proteus, Magneto, and Cable. And uh, the five in the midsection there, uh, they're just kind of going to stand around. One of them's going to get to talk, but uh, the rest of them are just going to stand around as they tend to do. Next stop, Sword Station 1. And if uh, you're a regular listener to this program, you might recall that our friend Damien wrote in a little bit ago to express that he didn't care much for uh, Abigail Brand. And I sort of kind of came to her defense. Well, um, I would like to officially rescind my previous testimony because in this scene, she is the worst. Uh, Here, Brand talks as though she is the smartest person in the room, and, uh, well, the other person in that room is Wizkid, so she's kind of delusional. Wizkid is still trying to figure out how to get a signal to Krakoa, and he asks if he can travel down there to get a closer look. To which, Brand says that she needs him where he'll do the most good, and for now, she'd really like to rely on her ace-in-the-hole, Mentalo. And so it goes. Over to the hatchery, where Mentalo is attempting to rescue-slash-kidnap the Five. Thing of it is, the Five ain't having it. And I mentioned that the four of the Five just kind of stand around, right? And I, uh, I'm getting a kick out of seeing uh, Tempest in the background of these scenes with the Five because it's almost as though she knows she's just X-Men wallpaper at this point and she's trying her best to make every second of panel time count. I mean, here she's posed like semi-seductively on the canon of Mentalo's think tank here. It's very, very silly and it's like, oh, look at that. Uh, the gimmick here is that Brand has a plan in mind for the Five if worse should come to the worst. And it's really not a terrible plan at all. It's just that uh, she's so up her own ass that she doesn't feel the need to explain things at the outset. Mentalo puts Hope Summers in contact with Brand in order to get a sit rep. Now, Brand advises that Mentalo will bring the five to Summer House to nab their Cerebro Cradle. Then, they'll head into Shi'ar space, because Lord knows it's been way too long since we've been there, hasn't it? There, DNA samples, including some of Mr. Sinister's, will be brought to the Five. So, you see where this is going? Mentolo will perform the Professor X function of downloading memories into the new bodies that Hope and the gang grow. And uh, Hope is not digging this idea. Even though, I mean on the face of it, it kind of makes sense. You see, if Null truly devours the Earth and everyone on it, this could be one way to begin rebuilding. Now, Hope refuses to leave Krakoa, stating that their mission is to bring back every mutant. So then she brings up how they're still reeling from the Rockslide and Gorgon situations, which uh, you'd think we'd actually have heard and seen more about since X of Tens, but uh, we have not. Brand isn't really all that interested in the preservation of Krakoa, nor mutantum. She, as we've seen uh, before during her contentious chat with Magneto back in the first issue of the series... She views this more as a universal situation. 
So to her mind, this uh, King and Black invasion here is far bigger than Krakoa, bigger than mutantum, even bigger than Earth. It's universal. And I tell you, that fits the character that we're going with here, so I will definitely give it that. Hope then makes fun of a mental silly tank. You know, but then WizKid shows up. He claims to have uh, come via translocator that he had uh, built into his chair rather than going through a Krakoan gate as he believes the gates have been compromised. And I could have sworn that this sort of thing was frowned upon by the Quiet Council. And what I'm getting at is here, um, using methods other than the gates to arrive on Krakoa. Maybe this is something that'll uh, be built on as, uh, as we move forward here. Who knows? Now, the symbiotic goop begins to seep into the hatchery, which threatens to consume all the gold balls. WizKid then takes control of the think tank and transforms it into a giant mech. We shift scenes to somewhere else on the island, where corrupted Kid Cable is still chatting up and mocking Manifold. Noel Cable refers to Manifold as the Everywhere Man, but points out that, no matter how powerful he is, he's not an Omega. Which is to say, there are plenty of people better than him. Plenty of people his better. Uh, Then, they fight. Manifold swipes and Cable body slides, and this goes on for several pages. Finally, Frenzy's able to escape the goop and sneak up on... Knable? Null Cable? I guess we can call him Knable. She tears his left arm off, which houses his body slide technology. Knable then tells her that he'll make her kill everyone she loves. To which, she says she's only ever loved one person. And if that one person felt the same way as her, Cable would be her stepson. Wow. A callback to Age of X? And that's not Age of X-Man. This is Age of X, that Mike Carey thing from, like, 12 years ago. Pretty deep cut. I like it. From here, Manifold uses his powers in a pretty unique way. Rather than teleporting away, because if we remember... He's not really a teleporter here. He just speaks to the universe. And so he asks the universe for a favor in the form of uh, getting a tiny bit of sunlight. So he's got a little bit of sun in his hand which, with which he punches Knable. So he uses this to burn the nullness off a of kid cable. This takes us to the end, and we get a, uh, we get a dance party scene. Seriously. Uh, the Think Tank is cranking out some... Undoubtedly bassy tunes And putting on a light show uh, You know, this is uh, not only for the entertainment value But it also is Maybe sonic enough to keep The uh, symbiotes at bay, the goop Now, uh, the five proceed to dance They have a mutant dance party uh, Mentalo smirks and comments that WizKid Stole all his records Now we actually close out with Magneto Beginning to pick up the pieces here We got Cable off to the side Feeling down about himself and this has been something we've been exploring with Kid Cable for a little while now, and will probably be coming to a head this summer. Magneto asks to have Fabian Cortez's resurrection jump ahead in the queue because he has matters to discuss with him. Huh. Remember, Cortez had some pretty radical things he wanted to present to the council regarding that pesky kill-no-man law. I wonder if Magneto might be starting to, uh, to turn. Hmm. From here we go to an info page. It's a note from Magneto to the Quiet Council about, well, this thing he'd like to discuss. And it's moderately redacted, as many of these pages are. He mentions that the Quiet Council is now down to eight members. But uh, I'm not getting that math. I thought it was officially down to ten. 
with Apocalypse gone and Jean Grey stepping down, maybe nine if Storm's already given her notice. I don't know. Uh, There's a handwritten note at the bottom from Professor X who cautions Magneto that what he's planning to do is akin to playing with fire. That's not all, though. We get one more info, info page, and it's almost completely redacted. Like, I don't know what the point of this thing is here. It's an entire page. An entire page full of redacted lines, and we only see three words on it. And they are Vought, like Amelia Vought, Snark War, and Sol, S-O-L. I don't know. I really don't know what that's about. Uh, though, I can tell you, I see Snark War, I... I start snore-warring. I I, I have no interest in that. But that is where we leave it. Next episode, we're going to be talking about X-Force, but let's talk about S.W.O.R.D. Now, I have a few takeaways from this issue, but before we get into it here, um, I do want to touch on the King and Black-idness of this uh, story here. Now, going into it uh, with these issues of S.W.O.R.D., I was a little bit uh, off-put. Since we had just introduced this new title and didn't really give it a, any room to breathe before jumping, you know, headfirst into a mass crossover event. That said, I think they handled this as well as they possibly could. I'm assuming this was a mandate, um, though maybe it's just a way to, uh, you know, kind of hit the ground running with a brand new title here. With uh, it didn't have much staying power the last time they tried it, so maybe this is an attempt at giving it. Lending it a little bit of uh, legitimacy, credibility, uh, making it a player in the uh, universe here. But that said, like I said here, this handled it quite well. Um, especially if we compare it to something like the Empire time tie-ins, which were garbage for the most part. Uh, here with King and Black, we have a nice little isolated story that... Helps to further our characters here. Um, helps to actually grow the Krakoa story in a way. It's it's about as well done as it possibly could be, given the the constraints of having to take part in this uh, in this crossover. So definitely a thumbs up for that. Now let's talk about some takeaways here. Um, we'll start with Magneto and Fabian Cortez here. Now, Fabian Cortez, as as we saw over the past couple of issues here, he seems to have a real sticking point about the Kill No Man edict here. And he approached Magneto about talking to him uh, in order to uh, maybe plead his case to maybe put in some exemptions or overturn it completely. And Magneto kind of just went, uh-huh, you know, kind of dismissed him. And uh, here, I'm not sure exactly what changed, but... Uh, but now he's kind of uh, interested in talking to Cortez. I wonder if we're going to see a uh, quiet council meeting with Fabian Cortez uh, pleading his case before long, uh, especially with the backing of Magneto. I think this could be quite interesting here. If nothing else, hopefully we can at least get a little bit of clarification if it's kill no man or kill no human. Because uh, as I mentioned, just about every time this law comes up, it's very, very nebulous, and it's usually story-specific. Whatever is uh, needed for the story to make sense and not break any rules here, that's the way it goes by. Uh, and the one I'm always reminded of is, is uh, the Hickman-Shiar story over in uh, New Mutants, where Magic asks those aliens, like, are you human? No. Okay, then I can kill you. And I remember bringing up then that... Uh, that the law was actually kill no man, not kill no human. 
I don't know how they're using that. Maybe we'll get some. Uh, maybe we'll get some clarification. Should Fabian Cortez uh, be able to uh, address the council with his concerns? Another takeaway here: Cable, Cable himself here. He uh, comes away from this seeing himself uh, as quite weak. He was able to be co-opted by Null and uh, the symbiote goop. And uh, that's something we're dealing with a lot over in Cable's own book, where, you know, uh, if you followed the Ex-Lapsination series of shows on this channel, um, you'll know that Kid Cable came back to take out Old Man Cable because he thought Old Man Cable was doing a pretty poor job Maintaining and uh, kind of guiding the timeline here Keeping the original five time displaced kids in the present day And so he took him out And here, we've had him mention over in the Cable Solo book here That he kind of second guesses himself here Like he'll see a situation in which he doesn't he doesn't react as well as he thinks he should have or Or the reaction that he has doesn't have quite the result that he had hoped for and he stopped and he's thought, yeah, maybe I, maybe the other guy was better than, than me at this. Maybe I need that experience. Maybe there's a reason why Old Man Cable was acting the way he was. And I like that they're doing that. I mean, we even saw it in, uh, in Exitens, where Cable had to fight uh, Bay the Blood Moon and uh, was unable to give the killing blow because he got a you know he got a glimpse of uh, Bay's husband Doug Ramsey's face and couldn't follow through couldn't do his appointed task here which i think bought him a lot of respect for the old man cable knowing that uh, there's a little bit of gray area in there there's feelings there's emotions it's not just this is your purpose go do it there are people you know, there are hearts and minds and uh, emotions, and I think Cable realized, Kid Cable realized that around then. Um, we also have Kid Cable drawing the Fool card from uh, Saturnine uh, at the outset of the battles of uh, X of uh, Swords there. So I think diving into his inferiority complex is a smart way to go here. I mean, I would never imagine that we'd be sympathizing with Kid Cable at any point because he just seemed like such a like a cocky jerk, <laughs> but here we're getting some depth and we're we're deepening him up, perhaps in you know on the eve of him being taken off the table completely. So uh, I, I think this is a very interesting character arc here, and I'm really looking forward to seeing where it goes. Another takeaway: Manifold's powers here. I made fun of this last issue because uh, it was basically like I'm not a teleporter. But all I do is teleport. <laughs> that was basically the message we got last issue. Whereas here, it's something altogether different here. We learn that, no, he doesn't teleport. He actually does communicate with the universe here, which I think is a really fun angle to play with here because in one regard, it makes him like one of the more powerful mutants on the planet, despite not being an Omega. But at the same time, it gives him a handicap because, I mean, he's at the service of the universe. So even if, like, today we had him draw a piece of the sun or a star, you know, some light from the universe. The universe lent him light so he could punch Null off of, uh, or the Null corruption off of Cable. But is that something he can count on with 100% certainty here? You know, he, I think this is one of those things where, like, you have the Justice League 
fighting a group of villains And one of them happens to know magic Or have a tap into magic here So they can take Superman off the board right? Because he's too powerful And he really doesn't need the rest of the Justice League You know, He can just go in and do whatever needs done Here Manifold being presented as this incredibly powerful character He also has this handicap that he kind of has to be in sync with the universe here He is at... He is at the universe's mercy. If he would have went and said, I need a son, or however he would have worded it, I don't know if it's something that is even put into words or just something that he knows he needs to accomplish a mission, the deus ex machina, you know. If he would have talked to the universe here, conversed with the universe and asked for this little piece of the sun or a little star or whatever it was, and the universe said, nah, you know, he would have been stuck. So I kind of like this here. I think this is a... A really fun way to explain his powers and also show them in action here Because, like I said, last ep- last issue, uh, it was kind of nebulous It was just like, yeah, I don't teleport, but here I am teleporting And that's all you're seeing me do So, this is a lot better uh, My final takeaway here is on Abigail Brand um, Despite the fact that I found her to be quite annoying during this uh, <laughs> during her brief... Uh, scene in this book I do like that they're keeping her characterization In as far as her goals And her mindset And her and her view uh, They're keeping that very, very stable Here we have her saying This is a bigger crisis Than we're giving it uh, credence for This is not an Earth crisis This is not a mutant crisis This sure as hell isn't a Krakoa crisis This is a universal crisis And if the Earth is wiped out here Well, we know there's resurrection technology on Krakoa We know who's responsible for it And should we need to to explore that option If the world is wiped out Then that's what we're going to do You know, I I like that a lot It really keeps her her character at Like odds with Krakoa While still kind of being in service of Krakoa I don't know exactly what the relationship is Because we do have Magneto as the liaison Between S.W.O.R.D. and Krakoan government I don't know if S.W.O.R.D. is something like X-Force Where they're on like another plane Like they don't have to answer to certain protocols Certain rules set by the Quiet Council Are they like a third-party contractor Who really isn't an official you know, part of this uh, family Of, uh, of titles and, and governance Just don't know is Krakoa funding S.W.O.R.D. with all the uh, the monies coming in from trade and, and medicines? And that might have been made clear and I missed it That is certainly a possibility But um, I don't know, I think this, is a, this has the uh, potential of being a very, very interesting thing here And despite the fact, like I said, Brand was annoying today um, It was fitting with her character And I liked the fact that they kept her kind of steady Um uh, the art here by Valerio Shidi, it's it's wonderful stuff. Very very good stuff here. Uh, definitely definitely liked it. But I think that's about all I got to say about this issue. Um, this is the end of the King in Black arc of Sword. We're going to something altogether different next time. It looks like, but it's not the end of uh, King in Black coverage here on this program. We do have. At least two more episodes where we're going to be diving into King and Black stories Uh, It's going to be two issues of Savage Avengers During which uh, we'll have the Marauders show up in one issue And we will also have uh, the Cyclops Who Laughs and the Storm Who Laughs Fighting against Conan and Deadpool So I look forward to that It's uh, 
It's, it's right around the corner, not too long from now. But um, that'll do it for the discussion of sword number four. Now let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a letter from Andrew Franklin talking about Children of the Atom number one. He starts with, Your episode on Kota had me all kinds of confused. You said that you thought it was about the chimeras and that you weren't looking forward to it. I also wasn't looking forward to it, but what I thought the book was about was even different from what you thought. I thought that this was the literal children of the X-Men. I mean, of the mutants who were at one time called the X-Men, since we all know there have not been any X-Men for a while. Very, very true. Very, very true. Because if we don't remember that, the writers sure aren't. Andrew continues, I thought this book was kind of an Elseworld, or an A-Next type of book, taking place on a possible near future where the characters were the children of Scott and Jean, Rogue and Gambit, etc. I don't know why I thought this, but I did. And that's not something I really cared about, so I did not read it. Wow, an A-Next reference. Oof. Uh, Anybody remember A-Next? That was uh, one of the other books from the uh, MC2 line. The MC2 line, you might be asking, that's Spider-Girl. The one that appeared in, uh, what was it, What If number 101 or whatever it was, and uh, went off to star in uh, a series of uh, volumes of comics that I think five people read. (laughs) Not very many people. This thing was always on the verge of cancellation here, but... uh, if not for the loudness of those five fans, it uh, it would have been gone long before it ever was. Now, there was another book, A-Next, which was a possible future version of the Avengers. And I might be wrong, but I think, like, Jubilee was the leader of it. I, I, I It's been 25 years since I've read it, probably, or 20-ish years since I've read it. Uh, the other books in that line were J2, which featured the son of Juggernaut, uh, Fantastic Five was one of them. Um, Spider Girl, of course. There was also Wild Thing, featuring the daughter of Wolverine. That was really, really bad. But I can definitely understand uh, your take. These characters all look like, you know, amalgamations of uh, some of our classic characters here. So certainly could stand to reason that they were the children of the X-Men. And uh, especially after, I mean, this thing was supposed to come out over a year ago. And uh, I remember the first time it was solicited, I didn't even order it because I thought it was going to be a... I thought it was just going to be like a, a miniseries that we didn't need. Like, it had nothing to do with the Krakoan uh, story, the current status quo. I thought it was going to be like a retelling of the origin, like they did with... Uh, I think it was Joe Casey did the Children of the Atom miniseries back around the turn of the century. I thought it was going to be more like that. And they didn't really hype it up. Um, all it was, I don't even think they showed a cover of it on DCBS. It was just like, Children of the Atom, number one. It's like, well, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it didn't look like it was something that I needed. So I didn't order it, and then I found out that it was something that uh, would be tying in. So then I ordered it, and then it didn't come for 14 months. But uh, I could totally understand uh, your, your point of view there. Uh, Andrew continues. When you got to the part where Pixie, Magma, and Maggot showed up, I just figured, oh, in this future, there are there these are the X-Men. And th- I was then extremely confused when it became clear that this story was happening now. And then the kids seemed to not be mutants, but then they seemed to be mutants. Or did they? Oh boy, I don't know what to make of this book. I totally agree. I'm not sure where they are going with this here. Um, uh, part of me, the... The comic cynic in me is already, like, kind of prepared for it to be something pretty bad. (laughs) But uh, I'm optimistic. 
Uh, I shouldn't have any reason to doubt uh, Vida Ayala uh, doing great work over in New Mutants. So fingers crossed that this will be this will be a decent payoff. Andrew continues. This must be a limited series, right? Even if it's not solicited as such, if this is about X-Men fans trying to be teen heroes, it can't have that much sustainability. This seems more like a side story. But what do I know? Maybe it sells gangbusters and these heroes become Avengers or something. Well, if they become Avengers, then we probably won't have to talk about them anymore because they'll probably demutantify them, right? Or if they are mutants to begin with, we don't even know. I gotta assume that this will be a short-lived book. I... I hope, I, I kind of hope it is Because, I, I mean, the line is bloated enough as it is We already have a book of, of young heroes here Do we need another? Will this be unique enough to justify its own existence? I mean, I guess we'll wait and see I guess we'll wait and see We know it's uh, being solicited at least through July at this point, I believe So, looks like it's uh, it's probably an ongoing, at least for now Andrew wraps up with I can't say I'm interested enough to buy the series But I am confused enough about what's going on That I suppose I must say that I'm interested in hearing where it goes So, until we learn just what the heck the point of this is Make mine X-lapsed And I feel much the same way Um, As of right now, only having read one issue If I weren't a crazy completionist who needs to have everything I probably wouldn't be continuing this series past wherever I have it pre-ordered to you know, I, I always try to give books a few issues to grow on me here, but judging by the, just this one alone, yeah, I, I think this one, we, we waited for it for so long, right? And everything is being kept close to the vests to the point where it kind of had to sell you in one. The premise, the concept, the characters, the motivations here, I think we... I think we needed to know a little bit more, and I'm not sure if it delivered on that. Uh, we add to the fact that they changed the last page in the digital version from the print version. Who could tell what way is up right now? Who knows? I mean, <laughs> such a last-minute change on a book that's been hyped for over a year. Seems a little weird, and it only made things more confusing, which... Uh, I really don't know But uh, thank you so much for writing in about the uh, the Kotas And we will follow that along as uh, as long as it goes So thank you uh, We have a message from Jesse Talking about X-Factor number 8 He says, hey Chris, I like the idea that iBoy can see the future It would explain why Xavier is interested in it I love the North Star no answer to the request for information I also like the brother and sister reaction between North Star and Aurora at the beginning can't wait to see where things will go with David and his obviously still-living self. X-Factor is still giving me what I want. And uh, yeah, I, I agree there as well. Um, now, for folks who haven't listened or read X-Factor number 8 here, we closed out with uh, Professor X given kind of... Well, I guess we couldn't see his eyes. I, I was going to say he gave a side-eye to iBoy, but uh, he was under the, the Cerebro helmet, so who knows what he was looking at. But he's interested in iBoy. He uh, asked Northstar via email if he could keep him apprised of everything going on with Trevor's powers, to which Northstar replied with, no, (laughs) just no. Because uh, we've seen, as we've been building this book and building this team, that Northstar is a little suspicious of the Quiet Council. He's not not completely 100% on board with the Quiet Council and what they do and why they do it. So if Xavier is asking for... You know, updates and sit reps on iBoy It stands to reason that Northstar is going to be like, nope 
And uh, one of the, well, we actually posited two theories during the discussion of that issue. One of them was that maybe one of his vision powers was seeing the future. And we know that precogs are not, they're like a no-fly zone on Krakoa due to, you know, the whole uh, Mora thing, the keeping destiny off the table thing. Another theory that I floated was maybe he could see things that uh, he shouldn't be seeing, or that Professor X would prefer he didn't see. Things like Mora's no place. Would iBoy be able to see that? Eh, stands to reason that it's at least an, at least a possibility. So, really, really cool stuff there. Uh, the opening scene between North Star and Aurora, that was a fun scene. Uh, the only thing that really bugged me about it was the fact that uh, Aurora plopped down on the couch soaking wet. Because that's gross. <laughs> that's really, really gross. Um, now, David, Prodigy... He is doing a lot of uh, forensic work on that photograph of he and uh, Speed making out in a club. And I want to say, I tried reading about where this took place. I think that scene took place somewhere in the Empire crossover. I can't say for 100% certainty, but I think that's where that scene was set to play out. And the idea that we're getting here is that there might be two prodigies walking around here. We have this one, the powered one who lives at the Boneyard, and then there might be one that was thought to have died, the depowered version from M-Day, and uh, maybe he didn't die. And maybe he's still around. So we could be having a face-to-face, you know, prodigy-to-prodigy meetup pretty soon. And uh, I, I tell you, I'm really looking forward to it because it's going to going to ask a lot of inconvenient questions. We know that the council and Krakoa as a whole, they, they're not keen on dupes. And here we have a character with powers, and we have the original without powers. So which one gets valued higher by the Quiet Council? It's going to be a very, very interesting thing here. So I'm in total agreement with Jesse here. Uh, X-Factor is still giving me what I want. But uh, thank you so much for writing in to talk about that very fun and uh, potentially challenging issue as we move forward. And now I'm very happy to uh, report that it's been a little while since my back is spasmed, so we can go right into the uh, solicitation coverage here. These are the solicits for June 2021 here. They come from Marvel Free Previews number 10. They're the April for June 2021 shipping product, and the cover features the X-Men. How about that? Uh, specifically, planet-sized X-Men, which is part of the Hellfire Gala. And uh, fair warning, uh, I'm going to be saying the words Hellfire Gala a whole lot over the course of the next several minutes. The uh, back cover of the issue features Heroes Return number 1, which, meh, you know. Now, the first page of the mag features a neat-looking invitation to the Hellfire Gala. Now, if I had any sort of ability as an event organizer or anything of the sort, I'd suggest that maybe we all try to have a virtual gala of our own this summer. Um, Maybe I'll figure something out, but probably not. Now, we're going to start with a non-Krakoa X-book here, and this is part of the Heroes Reborn story. This is Heroes Reborn Weapon X and Final Flight Number 1 by Ed Brisson and Roland Bashi, $5.00. The uh, byline is, uh, they're the best there is at what they do. And uh, the little blurb reads, In a world without the Avengers, the Squadron Supreme protects and defends the interests of America. But where does that leave a country like Canada? The Great White North is now a wasteland. Their forests are scorched. Their provinces annexed. Their people barely surviving. 
Who will stand up and protect them from the supremacy of the squadron? Weapon X in final flight. That's who. I don't think I need that in my life. Um, I think it's safe to say that uh, we will be skipping Heroes Reborn, Heroes Return, um, unless unless something happens after the fact, and I'll have to run around scrambling to pick stuff up. Um, I'm pretty sure we're not going to need this in our lives. Um, now, uh, moving on from that, I'm not sure if there's any actual reading order to the Hellfire Gala books. Uh, they seem to be listed in several different orders everywhere I look. Um, I suppose we'll worry about that as we get nearer to covering them, which, oddly enough, if my math is right, we'll begin Hellfire Gala coverage with episode 211, which is exactly 100 episodes after we started X of Swords. That was episode 111, so how about that? Uh, for today, though, we're just going to cover them in the order that they're presented here in this magazine. And that starts with, undoubtedly, not the first part. I don't think this is the first part here. This is Planet Size X-Men. This is the big book of the month. By Jerry Duggan and Pepe Larraz, $5. The headline is, They Came to Slay. Ugh. <clears throat> Ugh. Okay, the blurb. The Hellfire Gala rages on, but bigger things are afoot a world away. Make no mistake, this is an X-Men book drawn by superstar artist Pepe Larraz. It is absolutely the most important issue of the month. And wow, that sounds like the kind of blurb I'd write for an episode of this show. Doesn't give a whole lot of information, but it does its best to hype things up. Uh, I will say I'm a little concerned that it sounds like we might be getting, you know, dealing with yet another interplanetary threat. I guess that's just what the X-Men are now, unfortunately. Uh, but it is Jerry Duggan, so I I am very, very hopeful, of course. Uh, the cover, eh, I mean covers. It's just a static shot of Gene, Iceman, Storm, and Magneto just staring at us menacingly. Uh, kind of in the vein of, in the vein of, but not totally like, uh, like New Avengers number one. When New Avengers number one hit, that kind of became like, okay, this is what Marvel covers are now. Just the group looking at us. And we're getting, you know... 8,000 flavors of it now, and this is more of that. Next up, we got Marauders number 21. Again, Jerry Duggan with art by Matteo Lali, another $5 book. Also, hmm, Chris Claremont and John Bolton reprint material. Okay. The headline is Welcome to the Hellfire Gala. The blurb is The Hellfire Trading Company has put together the biggest event of the season, the very first Hellfire Gala. Everyone will be there. All your favorite mutants, their closest allies, even their worst enemies. For a night of dinner, drinks, diplomacy, and deceit. Fireworks to follow. Plus, from the archives, a classic X-Men tale with our very first look at a Hellfire Gala by Chris Claremont and John Bolton. Wait a minute. I, I thought this was the first Hellfire Gala. How can we have a story from the archives also be the first Hellfire Gala? I don't know, but I guess uh, we're going to do whatever we need to do to squeeze another book out of the readership. Um, now, if I were to guess, I would suggest that this is probably going to wind up being our official, unofficial part one of the Hellfire Gala. And the cover features Emma Frost wearing a very fashionable take on Steve Martin's arrow-through-the-head gimmick headgear. You know the one, right? Next up, X-Force number 20. Ben Percy, Joshua Kassara, $4. The headline is Invite Only to the Hellfire Gala. 
The blurb is, it's party time, but somebody's gotta work it. And when uninvited, when invited guests and a few crashers prove to be planted antagonistic agents, X-Force will need to get their hands dirty and keep this all under wraps before anyone catches wind. Okay, this sounds pretty fun. Um, using X-Force's bouncers is a pretty good angle here. I, I kind of dig this. It's the dirty work, right? I, I like that. Uh, the cover has Quentin undoing the velvet rope for someone holding an invitation, and he is flanked by Sage, Beast, Domino, and Wolverine. Definitely looking forward to that one. It, could, it sounds like it could be a lot of fun. Uh, speaking of looking forward, uh, Hellions, number 12. Zebwell, Steven Segovia, $4. Headline is, Who Invited the Hellions to the Hellfire Gala? To which I will answer, whoever did needs to be given a raise, because we need more Hellions stuff in this world. The blurb is, Who thought it was a good idea to invite the antisocial Hellions to the fanciest bash of the year? Oh, no one? They weren't invited, but they showed up anyway? Yeah, that sounds about right. Well, hell, how can this not be a slam dunk? You know, um, this is going to be a fun one. It's worth noting. The Hellions were all given new duds for the event, you know, um, in the Hellfire Guide. I mean, they, they all have their new outfits, which you probably wouldn't dole out if you weren't inviting these people, right? Unless maybe one of the clones of Bar Sinister is a fashion designer and just didn't want them to feel left out. I don't know. Uh, the cover features a food fight, and I already can't wait. That's going to be fun. Uh, Excalibur number 21. Teeny Howard, Marcus Toe, four bucks. Headline reads, Richter Hates Parties. The blurb is, even the nice ones. And with Captain Britain's return to a changed world, this one is looking to be not so nice. Excalibur's earth-shattering Hellfire Gala issues will change Krakoan diplomacy forever. Wow, that's that's you know, some strong words there, quite a bit of hype. Um, also, kind of a spoiler regarding Betsy Britain, but I mean, what are you going to do? I tell you, I am perfectly willing to keep an open mind on this one, so long as we don't spend half the issue in friggin' Otherworld. I mean, you know what, I take that back. As so long as we don't spend a single panel in Otherworld. Let's not do Otherworld at all, right? Let's please not do that. The cover features Richter walking away from the party, leaving a wake of torn-up earth behind him. Uh, poor Sebastian Shaw seems to have fallen in the resulting chasm. Chasm, however you pronounce that word. And we get a good look at a lot of these costumes here, and uh, wow, a lot of them are very, very ugly. <laughs> very ugly. Uh, next up, X-Men number 21, by Hickman and Friends, $4. The Heroes of Krakoa debut is our headline, and our blurb is as follows. It's a changing if the guard, oh, I think they mean of the guard, a changing of the guard is the first X-Men team of Krakoa debuts. One era ends as one new one begins, and the handoff happens here. Now, if only we didn't already have the new team spoiled for us. This might be something worth looking forward to. Um, plus, you know, if I were a betting man, which I'm not, I would suggest that we've already seen a lot of the pages that we're being expected to pay for in this issue. Uh, I, we saw over the course of the past several weeks uh, the voting results, right? And those all came in a page or two of art, and I'm guessing that they will probably be part of this uh, $4 issue. But it's not the first time that X-Men has expected us to pay money for something we've already read, is it? Um, now, worth noting, 
This is the final issue, which makes it the shortest volume of adjectiveless X-Men ever. Like, not uncanny, not astonishing, just adjectiveless X-Men. X-Men Volume 4 would run 26 issues. Volume 3 ran 41. Volume 2 ran for over 20 years. And Volume 1 ran until issue 142 when it was officially renamed Uncanny. So this, Volume 5, is the shortest adjectivelist X-Men ever. Uh, while on that topic here, uh, the most recent Uncanny volume, Volume 5, ran one whole issue longer than this, wrapping up with issue number 22. Though in fairness, there was a three-issue War of the Realms tie-in that ate up a few of the legacy numbers. Uncanny Volume 4 would only run 19 issues, so that's the shortest one overall. Volume 3 made it 35 issues, Volume 2 made it 20 issues, and Volume 1 made it the better part of a half century. <sighs> Simpler times. Um, now the cover to this issue here, X-Men Volume 5, Number 21, is a fairly baffling array of characters all posed and looking at us. Only two of the 11 characters here will actually wind up joining the team. So, I don't know if they're trying to uh, fake us out. Or uh, maybe they didn't realize they were going to spoil the thing uh, two and a half months before the fact. I don't know. Next up, X-Corp number two. Teeny Howard, Alberto Fochi, $4. Headline, a shark in the water. Blurb, after X-Corp's shocking debut, they got fences to mend, hands to shake, and most importantly, a board to staff. With Dr. Jamie Madrox's top-class dupes staffing the Hellfire Gala, CXOs Monet and Angel must stalk the dance floor and hope that they don't get preyed on themselves. Alright, so this is a five-issue miniseries, right? Yes? Why, in all hells, is it getting tangled up in a crossover, then? We only have five issues of this book. I mean, on the topic, do we need this? I mean, after this issue, we're going to be nearly half done with the run. And if this blurb is to be believed, we're just barely getting to staffing the board? Halfway through... I'm... I'm uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm dreading this one. I'm not looking forward to it. Uh, the cover has a woman who may or may not be Monet drinking a martini that has an olive with a pitchfork sticking out of it in the glass. So there's that. New Mutants number 19. Vita Ayala, Alex Linz, $4. The headline is, and I'll cry if I want to. The blurb, the Hellfire Gala is here, and the New Mutants have the chance to take a break from training the youth of Krakoa, an opportunity to get dressed up and get down. But not everyone is on their best behavior, and someone has vanished without a trace. I feel like every solicit this month talks about someone misbehaving at this party. <clears throat> um, worth noting, no Rod Reese on art, which of course is a shame. The cover is an attempt at Sienkiewicz-Rice surrealism with, uh, Mar by Martin Simmons, uh, who does a pretty good job. And it's the New Mutants entering the party with Emma Frost stood before them. Next up, Sword Number 6, Al Ewing, Valerio Shidi, $4. The headline is, This is What Comes Next, which I feel like is the headline for every issue of this title so far. Uh, the blurb reads as follows, On Earth, the Hellfire Gala is in full swing. But on Sword Station 1, a very different guest list comes together, as Abigail Brand finally reveals her plans for Mysterium and the future of human and mutant kind. So this one seems like a nebulous tie into the gala at best. Uh, maybe we'll call this a fabulous sky crossover? It's not a red sky crossover. 
you know, I don't know. I, I was I was hoping that Planet Size X-Men would be our only space-based chapter, but I guess not. Uh, the cover has the sword crew stood before that weird hunk of matter that they found back in issue one, the Mysterium. And there are various generic Marvel aliens reflected in the abstraction. So that's that. Uh, next up, Wolverine number 13, Ben Percy, Scott Eaton, $4. Headline, Hellfire Compromised. Blurb, can Wolverine and X-Force keep the peace or is the gala doomed? So this kind of looks like it'll just be part two of the X-Force bouncer story. So, uh, you know, kind of like we did with X of Ten's Wolverine and X-Force installments melding into one another. Uh, The cover has me excited because it features Wolverine fighting Deadpool. So hopefully this will be a fun one. Next up, Way of X number three. Cy Spuria, Bob Quinn, four bucks. Headline reads, Make More Mutants. Right here at the gala with everyone watching. Uh, uh, The blurb, It's the Hellfire Gala hangover. Nightcrawler tries to root out the evil working to destroy Krakoa by investigating all its laws, starting with... Sexy saxophone solo? Okay. Um, The cover has Nightcrawler, Pixie, and Dr. Nemesis all drunken-like. There's also a pointy-eared baby floating above the table. So might this be our final chapter, since it's the gala hangover? Maybe, maybe not. Because next up, we got X-Factor number 10. Leia Williams, David Baldion, four bucks. The Last Dance is our headline, and the blurb reads as follows. At the Hellfire Gala, secrets will be revealed, vengeance will be had, and someone's number is up. You'll never guess whose. So are we pretending that life and death matters again? Or is this just a hint that Polaris won the X-Men vote and might be leaving the team? I don't know. So maybe maybe Way of X isn't the final chapter. Maybe this is the final chapter. Maybe it's kind of like the Phalanx Covenant where we have the different waves. So like maybe X-Factor and Way of X are part of like Wave 3. You know, blood signs or <laughs> life signs or whatever the hell it was. Maybe that's what it is. Um, I figure we're probably just going to have to wait until the official coming soon page. For June to know for sure Which for someone like me who likes to have everything kind of in place before the fact Is one of those things that makes me itch Now the cover features an X-Factor dance-off We got Children of the Atom number 4 Vida Ayala, Paco Medina, 4 bucks Headline, Dreams Die Young Blurb, Krakoa is opening its doors for the Hellfire Gala Sounds like the perfect opportunity for the Children of Atom kids to visit After all, Krakoa is their home, right? What can stop them? Or rather, who? Now I thought, correct me if I'm wrong here, because I very well might be, I didn't think that the gala was happening on Krakoa. I thought it was happening on Emma's island in in the Faroe Islands. I thought that was kind of the whole point of buying the island, was to have the gala there. I could be wrong. Maybe I read it the wrong way. Now, this doesn't look like it'll be an official Hellfire Gala tie-in chapter. There's not even any branding on the cover to to say otherwise. Um, I suppose we'll just have to wait and see before we classify it, because I'm very anal about how I classify things. It feels like uh, just more of the same from this book. You know, the same mystery. We've only read one issue so far, or I've only read one issue so far. I think there's two out right now. But it still feels like uh, we're we're dragging out the, uh, the same mystery. I hope we're not dragging it out too long. Uh, The cover is a generic action shot, and if not for the number four on it, you'd never know it wasn't the same cover of the first issue, which we already read. Next, cable number 12. Jerry Duggan, Phil Noto, $4. Cutting the cord is our headline. The blurb is, Young Mr. Summers sends his regrets. 
he will not be attending the Hellfire, Hellfire Gala this year or ever again. Now, as we've discussed, this is the final issue of Cable, and the cover is Old Man Cable's face. So, huh. Huh. Looking forward to this one, of course. It's odd to me that they didn't try to squeeze an extra buck out of us for it. It's just $4. But I am definitely looking forward to it here. And I actually had a dream about this book, which might say more about me than anything else here. I dreamt about this book, and in it, we found out that uh, this wasn't Old Man Cable. Kid Cable goes away. But the man we think is Old Man Cable is actually Strife. I wonder... I wonder if that could be the way we're going here. Maybe Kid Cable will be replaced by Strife, and everyone will think he's Cable. Huh. Well, stranger things have happened, and if it does turn out to happen, then we can say we uh, we thought of it first. <laughs> we figured it out first. I don't know. Uh, next up, uh, Marvel Voices Pride Number 1. This features many, many, many creators and has a $10 price tag? Ten bucks? Okay, uh, ring in Pride Month with this amazing assembly of writers and artists from all walks of life. We got Wiccan and Hulkling, Iceman, Mystique and Destiny, Karma, Akihiro, Nico Minoru, and Cal- Carolina, California Dean. No, Carolina Dean. Celebrate these and so many more legendary characters from across the Marvel archive. Ten dollars? Okay. Well, reading those names... Uh, one of those stories immediately jumps out at me, and I'm very curious to see if it's one that'll be presented with a uh, present-day twist. And that story is Mystique and Destiny. Huh. You know, we got we got questions about the two of them here, especially in light of the fact that uh, poor Destiny is a no-fly zone, right? She's a no-go on Krakoa. They're not bringing her back, and Mystique... Might be getting ready to burn the place down. I, you know, I part of me wonders if Marvel would slide a story with actual big time Krakoan ramifications into this anthology. I kind of doubt it, but fingers crossed that they do. That said, I mean, ten bucks is a big ask. Uh, that's a lot of money. Um, the cover, it's a well, one of the like Skadey eight hundred covers for this issue. Uh, it features Dakin, Dakin, Angela, North Star, and one of the Power Pack kids. So. I think that's probably the one that I will be getting. I don't think I ordered a variant. I think I ordered just the the main one. Next up, a book we're not going to be talking about. Demon Days Mariko number one. Peach Momoko, five bucks. It's more Demon Days stuff with 8,000 variant covers, and we will not be dedicating an episode to any of these, and I figured I'd just include it here for completionist's sake. Speaking of completionist's sake, Guardians of the Galaxy number 15. Al Ewing and Juan Frigeri, uh, $4. Guardians vs. Sword is our headline. The blurb is, in the wake of the... <sighs> snark war, and reeling from revelations of their own, the Guardians come face-to-face with the Sword Station crew, including their quiet council liaison Magneto, and he's not known for friendly chats. It's the Human Rocket versus the Master of Magnetism, and it's winner-take-all. Well, yep, we're going to be covering this one. And, uh, I mean, don't look now, it's another space book. So, we're going to be space-heavy in June, it looks like. Or, or, you know, if I'm being honest, maybe not any heavier than we usually are on this show. Who knows? Now, a book that has absolutely nothing to do with the X-Men, but I saw the blurb, and actually it's just a headline for it, and I couldn't help but to kind of snicker. Um, Nonstop Spider-Man number four. 
Spider-Man versus Baron Zemo. Nuff said. Really now? <laughs> Nuff said? Like, are, are we chomping at the bit to see this? I don't know. I just saw that and thought it was like way out there. Um, now, those are all the single issues, but we do have some collected editions coming out here. Uh, we have several dozen King of Black collections, if you're interested in that. Um, now, as far as the X stuff is concerned, we got Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood Treasury Edition. 136 pages, 30 bucks. Now, someone a while back asked why I didn't include these in the X-Labs rotation. Um, and they're kind of a take on Batman Black and White, with just splashes of red. And it's anthology stuff, and I didn't think it was absolutely necessary to cover, since as far as I know, the stories aren't based in this current day Krakoan era. Now, that said, I haven't read it, so if anybody knows different, please let me know, and I will uh, I will include anything that uh, that we need to include. Uh, Thirty bucks for 136 pages, that is that's a bit steep. Um, next up, Reign of X Volume One, 160 pages, 18 bucks. This includes Sword Number One, X Men Volume Five Number Sixteen, X Force Number Five, and Hellions Seven and Eight. So only five issues included. Hmm. And I guess this answers some folks' questions about whether or not Marvel was going to continue the Dawn of X anthology collections after X of Swords. And our answer is, well, yes and no, I guess, because we have anthologies still coming out. They're just renamed and renumbered under the uh, Reign of X, you know, uh, branding. And uh, I still think this is a fantastic idea. I love the idea of these anthologies and... Uh, Coming soon, we're actually going to be doing a project here on the channel that will be utilizing those anthologies, so uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, we got Modoc Head Games, the collected edition here, 120 pages, 16 bucks. I'm only including this since we did cover an issue of this on the show. Um, a very fun issue, and uh, this collection might just be worth a peek. X-Men Epic Collection, Volume 19, Mutant Genesis, 472 pages of $40. This collects Uncanny X-Men 278 through 280, plus Annual 15. X-Factor 65 through 70, plus Annual 6. X-Men Volume 2, number 1, 2, and 3. And New Mutants Annual, number 7. That's a heck of a collection, and I put a note here saying that I need to check how deep a discount DCBS sells these at. And I found out. They're 40 to 50% off there. And I mean, I'm not getting paid to plug these people, but... Uh, 20 bucks for 500 pages of X-Men? That ain't bad at all. If you, uh, if you got the 20 bucks to swing and you have any interest in this, I would, I'd recommend doing it. Uh, next up, New Mutants Epic Collection, Volume 5, Sudden Death. 464 pages, 40 bucks. Collects New Mutants issues 55 through 70 in annual number 4. This is still pre-Liefeld stuff, uh, and this features the animator and bird brain. So, uh... If that's your thing, this is for you. We got the Wolverine Epic Collection, finally. Volume 3, Blood and Claws. This is 456 pages at $40. This collects Wolverine issues 31 through 44. Wolverine Bloodlust and Wolverine Bloody Choices. So, another nice, hearty volume here. These Epic Collections, man. I, yeah, I went all in on the Essentials when those were the thing. And then the Epics came out, and it's like, ah, oh, man, do I need to own these things again? And I, I said, I told myself no. And now seeing them, and especially seeing how cheap they are at TCBS, boy, that's uh, I'm getting the itch. <laughs> I'm definitely getting the itch. Twenty bucks for all that stuff. I, oof, that's 
that's going to be a conversation I'm going to have to have with myself in front of a mirror for several minutes, I think. Now, uh, let's go through the month here so we can talk about how expensive this week's this month is going to be. Now, shipping June 2nd, Hellions number 12, Marauders number 21, and X-Force number 20, so that's a $13 week. Shipping June 9th, we have Children of the Atom number 4, Excalibur number 21, and X-Men number 21. That's a $12 week. Shipping June 16th, we got New Mutants number 19, Planet Size X-Men number 1, X-Corp number 2. So a $13 week, unless, of course, you're a super completionist and you're including Demon Days Mariko and Heroes Reborn Weapon X, because then you'll be up to a $23 week. Shipping June 23rd, we got Guardians of the Galaxy 15, Sword number 6, Way of X 3, and Wolverine number 13. That's a $16 week. Uh, but if you're also picking up Marvel Voices Pride number 1 that week, that'll be a $26 week. Finally, shipping June 30th, we got Cable number 12 and X Factor number 10. A relatively cheap week, only $8. So your month is if you're following all of these, is at least $62, up to $82 if you include Voices, Heroes Reborn, and Demon Days. For me, it's going to be a $72 month. And I would love to hear what your pull list looks like. Uh, Definitely feel free to let me know what you're going to be picking up and if there's anything in here that interests you or anything in here that turns you off. I'd love love to chat about that kind of stuff here. But that will do it for our solicits for this month. Now, if you'd like to reach out and talk about, well, anything you want, you can do so very easily. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. There's also an Instagram for 90s X-Men. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere you find noise. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, please feel free to spread the word, share the shows, maybe even leave it a review on the, on the iTunes. I'm, I'm always nervous to ask about that because the last time I did, um, well, it didn't work out so well for me. I think someone actually went in there and changed a five-star review to a four-star review. So fingers crossed that that doesn't happen here. I know I'm testing fates, but uh, anything we can do to uh, help grow the show and grow awareness that the show is here, I, I do spend a whole lot of time on it, so the more the merrier. So anything you can do to help would be most appreciated. Speaking of appreciated, I want to thank you all so much for sharing a a bit of an extended bit of your time today. Uh, Definitely appreciate it. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Searching for the real thing Living life
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 185 of X Lapsed, which, for the time being, for folks who follow this program day to day, or I guess in real time, it's going to be the final episode for well, a little while. Not not too terribly long. I'm uh, kind of at the mercy of, uh, of of not UPS, the other one, FedEx. That's who I'm at the mercy of here. Um, I mentioned this in a previous episode, but uh, I received a message from my comics distributor, DCBS, that uh, due to a diamond uh, little kerfuffle, the shipment was being pushed back a few days. Now, uh, normally that wouldn't be too big a deal, but, uh, well, we're caught up on this program, so it kind of is a big deal. I'm waiting on the April books to show up, and so we got, uh, well, we've got nothing to talk about after today um, until these books arrive, and... I don't know uh, what kind of ETA to give it because there are times that DCBS shipments show up in two days and then there's times where they show up in two weeks. So uh, we will play it by ear and uh, I assure you as soon as they arrive we will uh, resume, I think, with an issue of Excalibur. So uh, I apologize for the delay and I apologize that when we do come back it'll be Excalibur. But... uh, With that bit of housekeeping out of the way, let's get into today's issue. Now, we are back with the flagship book, or at least allegedly the flagship book. This is X-Men Volume 5, number 19. Had a May 2021 cover date. Stories called Out of the Vault, written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Mahmoud Azrar. Colors, Sonny Go, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, edits Bisa White-Zabolski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale the very last day of March, March 31, 2021, which is why this is the last book we'll be covering until that shipment comes in. So let's start with the cover. I uh, don't care for it. <laughs> I really can't explain why, but there's, there's something about it that bugs me. I've been looking at this cover for a very long time now. I think it might be Serafina's face. It's just very, very unpleasant to look at. She just has a very... Um, I don't know, just like a snarl on her face that is uh, not becoming, I guess. So let's get into the book. We open with a graphic page. Hmm, not exactly the same thing as an info page, but not entirely different either. We're going to see a bunch of these today. Now here, we see three timelines, and one for each of our Vault team members. It's left pretty nebulous, with no actual markers of time, just events... Uh, And the only event on this page is that our heroes entered the vault. And uh, we're going to find out why there are no actual markers of time as we work our way through this. So then, we get to comics content, and we pick up right where we left off last issue. And it's not often I get to say that about a Hickman story, is it? He's usually one and done for these flagship issues, so this uh, this is a bit of an anomaly, isn't it? Now, this is in the wake of that one child of the vault blowing everybody up real good. And we've got our heroes, right? We've got our three heroes, and they start off as skeletons, because they've been blown up. However, they begin to regenerate to their normal forms, and this is likely due to Laura's regenerative, easy for me to say, abilities, 
Darwin's adaptability ability, and Sink's power to piggyback. You know, once they're back in their flesh and, flesh and blood form, they run deeper into the city, as our narrator, who is Sink, he informs us that the first 50 years in the vault were the longest. So, uh, we're playing with, uh, with time distillation and, uh, wackiness today. From here, it's our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters are X-23, being referred to as X-23 and not Wolverine, Darwin, and Sink. And another graphic page. And boy, this one is jam-packed. Now we're going to go through these timelines here. Now we start at the top, we work our way to the bottom of the page here. It's not immediately apparent that that's the direction we're going. I think that's just the way it's going to be. So, we start at the top here, and our heroes, they create a makeshift command center somewhere in the vault's outer ring. They would attempt to make contact with the outside world, but that would be impossible. They also attempt to synchronize the time differences within the vault. This is also unsuccessful, and, you know, we're going to find out here, thanks to Darwin, he deduces that the passage of time here is not consistent to begin with, so there isn't any sort of accurate comparison to be made to the outside world. Like, for example, we can't say, like, for every Earth minute, one year passes inside the vault, because there's no concrete consistency, it's just different. Then, there's a time debt inversion, um, whatever that means, that's a way too high concept for a, uh, for a modest bumpkin like me. Um, then the recon team runs into the child called Horador. This is a teleporter whom Sink borrows the powers of. And they keep Horador's DNA in a stasis pod for potential for future use. So this is a new thing that Sink is doing here, keeping DNA of the children so he can access and piggyback their powers. We found out last issue that uh, Sink's piggybacking abilities aren't just for mutants anymore. He can basically piggyback any superhuman, or at least the children. Our team then successfully maps Quadrant 1 of the vault, and then 2, and then 3, then they deduce the location of the city brain and the child replication center. Then the mutant incursion is detected, and uh, that's where we leave this page off. And I gotta ask, isn't it great that we're not actually wasting comic book pages telling this comic book story? <clears throat> Meanwhile, X-Men 12 and 14 use like 80% of the same art. as uh, Hickman style. Hickman style. Gotta, can't say anything about it. Back to actual comics here. Now, the recon team does a bit more urban exploration. Darwin adapts the, to this, like, really nasty cluster of glowing bumps on his back, which somehow masks the mutants as children of the vault so they can come and go more freely without being, you know, just spotted. It's really disgusting, though. Um, there really had to have been a more aesthetically pleasing way to depict this, but uh, what are you going to do? They're able to glean here a surface-level understanding of what the vault is. Uh, the children, they lay dormant for two months, and then they grow for two more months, and the cycle repeats over and over again. Guess what? Graphics page, because why the F not? The recon team is able to evade, likely to Darwin's nastiness, so they are able to stay under the radar. Darwin's DNA is then preserved by the city itself. We're going to see that play out in a little bit. The heroes set up a second command center. We get tactical assault by mutant recon team, whatever that's supposed to imply. The team then learns about the child classes and evolutionary plan. 
And with this knowledge, they, they attempt to escape the vault because that was their mission here. They had to learn what the children were up to. And uh, so with this information at hand, uh, the, our trio figured, hey, we can go now. But they can't. They were unsuccessful in their attempt to escape. They discover a, a vault shield. Now, this was erected after their arrival. And uh, from what we hear, it would burn them and remove their mutant abilities if they were to pass through them. So probably not the best thing to do. Multiple breach attempts fail, and so we tell that our team is trapped. Then the team fractures. Now here's where our timelines begin to stylistically spread out on the page. It's not so much a splintering, it's just that Laura, Darwin, and Everett's respective lines grow further apart on the page. We hear that Wolverine hunts alone, so we can assume she's on her all by her lonesome. Sink constructs a stasis system to preserve child DNA. Thus far he has Fuego, who is the Ghost Rider looking goofball. Horador, the teleporter from earlier in this issue, and a pair of new characters, Diamante and Madre. Now, Darwin evolves and adapts himself for isolation, and then our recon team reforms. They plan a city assault, and they fail. Next up, we get back to comics, and uh, we actually, in these comic pages, we recap a bit of the timeline that we just read like two seconds ago, and it's here that we meet Madre. Now, Madre is a strange case. We don't know a whole heck of a lot about her, but we do know that while the rest of the children are in stasis, she's awake, and vice versa. Not really sure why. Uh, now, Sink draws a comparison between the vault and Krakoa's own resurrection protocols, which I'm pretty sure was an observation we made last issue, so hey, get, get with the program already, Everett. So, now here's the gimmick for our recon team. They know they've been found out, and so they attempt to fake their own deaths. Right? We saw how the timelines kind of split off in the graphics page here. This is going to explain that away. Now, they set off a big explosion, and they leave Darwin's forearm, like literally a body part, uh, behind in the wreckage to further prove that they'd been blown to bits. Now, this turns out to be a very bad idea indeed. That is, leaving Darwin DNA behind, which we'll soon find out why. Now, the recon team then finds their way into the stasis center, where we see a bunch of the children slumbering in fluid-filled tubes. One of those children is the other new one, Diamante, and he kind of looks at first blush like he's wearing one of Professor X's Cerebro helmets, but it's actually just that his head has like a diamond-filled dome atop it. Now, Diamante's deal is that he is the living repository of vault history, and so if Sink were to cop his powers, he'd learn everything about everything. And so, it's time for a trip down memory lane. We see that mother brain looking thing, which I guess is the city brain. Then we learn a little bit about the first generation of the children of the vault, or Everett does anyway. Now these are the ones that uh, the Mike Carey originals here from the Supernova storyline back in the long ago. The second generation are of the children are the ones that I think we've been dealing with in this volume so far. Uh, they're the ones who were captured by Orcus, if you remember them. The third generation would be the final generation, the ones who would be ready to take over the world when released. Now, this is when the recon team realized that they knew enough and tried to escape the vault. And of course, like we just read two minutes ago, we know that they're going to be unsuccessful. We then jump ahead a hundred years. One hundred years. Ev, Laura, and Darwin have all, well, not so much aged, but matured. Now, Sink has a beard. 
Laura has a white streak in her hair, and uh, Darwin is spiky. He's got spikes. They attempt to attack the city brain, and they lose. And they're separated, with the children capturing Darwin and Laura. Darwin for reasons that will soon be very, very apparent. Well, we've had about three or four pages of comics. I think it's probably about time to get back into the graphic pages here, so let's do it. Sink attempts to rescue his teammates, and these attempts fail. And so, Darwin and X-23 remain prisoners. Sink, now on his own and without his teammates to power piggyback, finds himself actually aging. He was, you know, around characters who didn't age normally, so he was able to kind of, you know, glean off of them and stay young. So now... He knows he's got to escape the vault before long because he's getting older. He ambushes a child called Terramoto. Not sure who that one is, but they appear to have earth-moving powers. He then collects accessories in order to survive a dormant period. Now, Sink gambles that not only is time inconsistent here in the vault, it's also inconsistent in different areas of the vault itself. So, in certain areas of the vault, it might be a year. In other places, it might be a day. So... He uses the earth-moving powers that he's taken from, uh, whoever that was, uh, Terramoto, to tunnel to an area directly below the vault, and he waits there for one week. Turns out a week in the underground is equal to a hundred years topside. And so, for all intents and purposes, he re-emerges a century later, having only aged a week. After this, Everett is able to rescue Wolverine... But at this point, Darwin's timeline ends on our, on our page here, and we'll soon see why. Wolverine and Sink then search for Darwin. They capture Serafina, and Sink uses his powers to copy hers, after which they discover the location of their missing friend. Back to comics. Now, as Sink prepares to rescue Laura, he thinks back to his childhood, and he describes it as a time where he was posing as a human. I don't know if that's important or relevant, but uh, I thought it was worth mentioning. He rescues Laura using an explosive spear or something like that, and they're able to escape. We see them huddled up together, so we might assume that there's a bit of a romance developing here. We see them capturing and killing Serafina Mark III, and discovering where they are keeping Darwin, and so that's where they head. (sighs) Graphics page! We got another one. We got another one. Now, Darwin's timeline restarts when Sink and Wolverine discover his location. Then there's a bit of a revelation about the Diamante City Data Core alignment. It's everything that the city has learned since the mutant incursion, basically. Now, we learn that pre-Krakoa, the children were projected to be able to take over the Earth with their third generation, right? Post-Krakoa, they realize they're going to need to cook just a little bit longer and will require a fourth generation. Now, I hear you asking, how in the hell are they planning on doing that? Well, you know, we might assume that they just do the same thing that caused them to go from Gen 2 to Gen 3, but now we got a better reason. They've got Darwin. Now, first they had his forearm, and were able to deduce that he was the key to their next evolution, and then they went ahead and captured the man himself, and spent decades experimenting on him until they unlocked access to the way to become the fourth generation of children. After which, Darwin's timeline ends again. He's been atomized, basically. And our remaining reconners attempt to escape using the DNA of Mervavon. Okay. Mervavon, easy for me to say, is described as a child disruptor. Okay, then. Back to comics. 
So Laura and Everett rush toward that vault shield. Now, just as advertised, it burns them and strips them of their powers. Uh, they're nude and bald, but they still have their eyebrows. That's probably for uh, improved emotability. I don't know. Then the children show up. Laura tells Sink to run for it. She's going to hold off the children while he escapes back to reality with the information Professor X needs. Sink manages to escape the vault and mentally reach out to Xavier before he's overwhelmed and killed by the children. Flip the page and, uh, well, next we know, Sink is in the hatchery being resurrected. Xavier informs him that he was able to back up his memories in the moments between escaping the vault and being killed by the children, so this mission wasn't all for nothing. It also means that Everett remembers being alive for many, many, many years. Next to him, Darwin and Laura are also being resurrected. And uh, it's a good thing we already retconned Laura into not being a clone of Wolverine, right? Because otherwise that might be sticky. Now we wrap up with Sink making uh, the goo-goo eyes at Laura, but she ain't having none of it. We can assume that she and Darwin do not remember their time in the vault. It's worth noting, immediately upon resurrection, Laura already has her adamantium claws, so I guess maybe they... Injected into the gold ball, or I, I don't know. Uh, we know, uh, we know that Forge has that molten pool of the stuff. Uh, maybe they, maybe she already took a dip in it. I don't know. But that is where we end it. Next episode, we have a most malicious issue of Excalibur. So let's talk about this. Um, we're uh, expo- exploring some weird angles for the resurrection protocols here. Um, In this case, uh, the potential loss of shared memories dependent on when one's last Cerebro backup was, right? We get this impression that there was a romantic entanglement between Laura and Everett. Only one of them remembers it, though. Of course, this is all undermined by the fact that we never actually see Laura and Everett being in love. I mean, we get a line on the graphics page saying that that they endured together. And we do get that one panel of them huddled up together. But, I mean, for a story bit, uh, that should have been more tragic and had more of a sad feeling, it kind of doesn't. This is like someone telling you the story of a time something profound happened in their life. Sure, I mean, you can get the broader aspects, right? But unless you see it and experience it with them, there's going to be a certain level, no matter how big or small, a level of disconnect. So it's like I see Laura and Everett, and it's clear at the end of the issue that he remembers their time together and she does not. So I want to care about it, but I don't. You know, let's let's hop across the street over to DC Comics here. Now this... If they play this out the way that they might, it could go the way of the uh, relatively recent, uh, the post-rebirth Wally West and Linda Park relationship. Now, for folks unaware, Wally and uh, Linda were married in the uh, pre-Flashpoint era. Wally remembers that. She does not. Now, it's a bit of a creepy thing, yes, um, because, you know, you have someone just saying, hey, you know... I mean, just picture it. Play it out in your own mind here. Someone comes to your door, you know, in the next 10 minutes and says, Hey, remember me? We were married in another universe, another lifetime. You'd have them committed, right? So it is a little bit creepy, but 
we're 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 observers to this. We can actually feel the tragedy tragedy of it because we lived it with them. We lived it with Wally. We saw. I mean, we see. We saw them meet. We saw them date. We saw them exchange Christmas presents. We saw them get married, have children. We have a reason to care and be invested in whether or not they're able to find their way back to one another. We don't quite get that here, you know. Um, Hickman is. Uh, I mean, and for all the guff that I'll give him about info pages, graphics pages, uh, kind of shallow um, characterization, uh, you know, trying to push forward the, you know, the high concept sort of ideas more so than actual characterization. I mean, he's very good at that stuff. He's very good at the high concept. He's a great idea guy, but I mean, for things like characterization, for things like st- I, you know, for lack of a better term, street level sort of stuff here. Uh, the mundane. He's definitely more of, a, I guess, the opposite of show don't tell. He he tells don't show, right? And uh, and that's too bad. That really is too bad because I mean, this relationship that might have spanned decades got one line on a on a graphics page and one panel in the comic. So it's it's really hard to be invested. And I mean. I mean, if we think about it in the grander scheme of this volume of X-Men, uh, I feel like he's been so intent on wasting so much of our time throughout this volume that uh, there might have been some nice character moments, but, you know, we just didn't get them because high concept. And uh, we'll just let the rest of the writers write about that in the books that uh, less people buy and less people read and less people are invested in. But, you know, I'd really like a reason to care about this relationship because it seems like it could be fun. And we know that they're both going to be on the uh, the new Krakow and X-Men team together. So there are possibilities there for, uh, for you know, further ramifications going down the line here. Now, with that out of the way, let's talk a little bit about the children here. Um, this is probably my main takeaway from this issue. And I have to ask the question here, is this another instance of our heroes, an attempt to stop something horrible from happening, happening, something that Mora may have foretold or just lived through in different lives? Is this a case where they actually, instead of, instead of stopping it, they more or less expedite or worsen their own fates? Very early on uh, in this, uh, the Hoxpox era here, we saw with the Orcus Assault, Back during the Hoxpox, you know, miniseries or event that Xavier and Mora sent the team to the Mother Mold in order to stop Nimrod from happening. And we find out that, uh, well, it turned out that all it did was speed up the process. So, um, not, not much help. Not a net positive there, right? Now here, our heroes were sent into the vault to get, you know, data, details. And what they wind up doing is giving the looming threat of post-humanity the potential to become even stronger with their fourth-generation evolution in leaving Darwin's DNA there. Now, if that is the case, I, I give it two thumbs up. I like that as an idea because, I mean, we're not going to be reading this uh, era of X-Men for 100 years, right? So we need Nimrod to happen sooner than that. We need post-humanity to pose a threat sooner than you know, X to the third power, right? We, we can't wait a thousand years to get there. And so if this is the plan to, you know, bring these threats closer to now so they can defeat them, 
I, I'm definitely down with that. I think that's a great idea, and it doesn't feel like a uh, like a cheat because I mean, if a post-human threat shows up in the next year of publication time, we can call back to this moment here and be like, well, they had Darwin's DNA, and uh, the children were able to evolve and keep evolving and keep evolving because Darwin's whole gimmick is adapting to survive. So. It makes perfect sense here. Also, with the Nimrod thing with the Orcus Forge, I mean, we don't want to wait forever to get to Nimrod. So if Nimrod shows up, of course, time travel is always a thing we can rely on, but we can always just cycle back to, wait a minute, well, actually, in in destroying the Mother Mold, it just got, uh, what was it, Dr. Gregor? Was that her name? I haven't thought about her in many, many months now, but uh, she got to work on Nimrod. So I'm down with that. I'm definitely down with that. That said, um, don't really have a whole heck of a lot more to say about this issue. Um, I the 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 overload of graphic pages here. Um, it just makes it feel like like this is something they realized they needed to get to before the Hellfire Gala. And it's like, oh crap, how are we going to cram this much story into one issue? And so they uh, kind of went, you know, they kind of took the less scenic route and just just gave us an info dump. Which, I mean, this isn't the first info dump we've gotten in the uh, the Hox, Pox, Docs, Rock, Socks books here. So it's just a par for the course. I, I would have appreciated um, maybe a little bit more artwork, especially when we have an artist like Mahmoud Azrar, who is uh, fairly phenomenal. But um, overall, um, I got to say I enjoyed talking about it more, a lot more than I enjoyed reading it. It was a little bit of a chore to read, but... Uh, had a good time talking about it, so uh, there's that. Now, before we cut on out of here, we got to dip into the mailbag here. We got one letter today from our friend Evan. He's talking about... Well, he's actually talking about an issue of this very comic. He's talking about X-Men number 17. And he says, I like this issue. It made sense, to me anyway, for Deathbird to call in the X-Men to avoid an intergalactic incident. And though I may have misunderstood, I thought Oracle had scanned the staff, but Jean did things a little differently and discovered something she had missed. I can't disagree with other inconsistencies you pointed out, but I thought it was fun nevertheless. I also appreciated that Xandra and Deathbird, somewhat uncharacteristically, responded to the attempted coup with mercy rather than vengeance. Well, everything you say is true, but uh, I'm just beyond burnt out on the Shi'ar. I think think it's just a knee-jerk thing where it's just like, I'm going to start gritting my teeth and and balling up my fists. It's a... just, we've had so much of it. <laughs> we really have had just so much of it. And, uh, I mean, Oracle's powers, uh, I, you know, I I didn't get that from the reading, that uh, she had scanned them already. I, I could be mistaken. I may have glazed over. I don't know. Uh, Evan continues. I think one reason that I enjoyed this is that I read it kind of breezily and didn't delve too deep. And I missed a great point that you brought up. Maybe there is a parallel between the way the Shi'ar treat the Stagians and the mutant supremacy angle, or at least how those in the know treat the rank and file. I just read it as boilerplate racism-classism commentary, but that angle adds depth and could make this more than a one-off. Hickman has laid some building blocks in the flagship title, but it feels kind of haphazard. It doesn't feel like they're building much. Yes, that's true. Um... Like, uh, like we say, like almost every time we talk about a book with Hickman's name on it, um, great ideas. You know, the ideas are there, and uh, it's just that we... For every good idea that actually gets played out, uh, none of them really happen in this book. 
Um, this book, we don't see characters change. We just see them changed, right? Like they they they're in this book. Something happens somewhere else. They come back here. They're they're different, but we don't actually see them going through it. It's uh, it's one of the main criticisms that I have about the Teeny Howard Excalibur. So much of what happens happens off panel, and it's just it's hard to it's hard to I, I guess relate. It's hard to invest emotionally uh, because we're just getting idea after idea after idea with. Uh, just no pl- no payoff here. It's like uh, we're building we're building a house out of mud bricks that you know the mud hasn't solidified yet, right? It's just it's just muck. <laughs> and it, sure, it's getting higher every time you stack a brick on it, but it's like we got to start doing something here. We got to start firming this up a little bit. And I mean, uh, this is a long game, right? We know that this uh, that this era is going to last at least three years, so maybe four is what we're is what we were told. I think not too long ago So we got time We got time to play things out I don't know that we have time for this many throwaways But because uh, I mean Like like we talked about during the episode here With uh, with X-Men 17 The Shi'ar look at the Stygians Like the mutants of nowadays Look at humanity As you know being inferior And I mean that turns Decades worth of X-Men storytelling Right on its ear and in a good way Because it explores whole new avenues here just a world that we never experienced, at least not the prime Marvel Universe. I'm sure there were what-ifs and stuff like that where the mutants were the, the, you know, the supreme uh, power in the, uh, in the, on the Earth. And humans were you know, relegated to, uh, to serfdom and uh, hiding, right? But here, we're actually in the 616 here, and there's this like weird ethnocentrism, this Krakoan ethnocentrism. And it's, uh, it's pretty neat. It's pretty neat, but... Again, it's idea after idea after idea. We're not building on it. We're just giving new ideas. So I don't have, I don't have confidence that it's going to be followed up on, or at least not in a satisfying way, and perhaps not even in the way that it was initially intended to play out. Because who knows? I mean, the story we just read today, um, the we're in the vault, right? They introduced the concept of the vault over a year ago. The the concept of X-23, Sink, and Darwin entering the vault a year ago. And it hasn't been mentioned since. Uh, what else? I mean, we've talked about Mora a lot, but she's shown up in, like, what, one, two panels since Powers of X number six, since the end of Hoxpox? Hey, what happened to Arako? Remember Arako? <laughs> that thing we built to for all those months? It's just somewhere. We're not following up on these things here, and I feel like... I feel like this run or this this era may be defined by the old, you know, famine to feast and back to famine again because it's like we get stories that are kind of just there in our flagship book. I mean, the other books are, are really, really carrying the load here. But we're getting these stories that kind of waste time, and then we get excellent stories. And like we had the Mystique issue, we had the Crucible issue, we have great, great stuff, and then we have not-so-great stuff. It's not, it's the only thing consistent about it is that it's inconsistent. And it's like I worry that we're going to be treading water for all this time, just letting ideas simmer, and then all of a sudden it's going to be like, boom, 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 here's everything paying off. And then back to nothing. And then boom, 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 pay off, and then nothing again. I don't know. I I, I don't know how uh, history is going to treat this era. I'm very... um, 
I'm very curious to see how people look back on this uh, on this era when it's all said and done, because there are eras in the X Men that we look back on fondly. Um, the Morrison run, a lot of the Claremont stuff. Um, for me, a lot of the Lobdell stuff. Then there's eras that we we don't look back too fondly on, and I wonder where this is going to wind up falling in there. If if I were a betting man, I'd say people are going to wind up saying they loved it. It's going to be the old uh, the old internet eleven out of ten rating. But uh, when your honest opinion won't get you a whole bunch of uh, retweets and pats on the back, uh, that's that's kind of when the honesty comes out. So I wonder how it'll be looked at honestly in the uh, future here. Now, Evan wraps up with, I don't understand the return of the X-Factor costumes either. Perhaps Deathbird called on uh, Laundry Day, but I was happy to see them. And yeah, for folks who haven't read X-Men number 17, for some reason, Scott and Jean were in their old X-Factor costumes. Haven't the foggiest idea why. Uh, Maybe that'll make sense. Um, I, I couldn't tell you. Uh, but like Evan, I was happy to see them because uh, those stories are, are kind of in my wheelhouse. So it was neat to see the callback. I just wish we had an explanation as to why. Maybe we will. Maybe we will somewhere down the line. It'll be it'll be the aha moment. It's like, oh, that's why they were in X Factor costumes there, and oh, that's why Jean was wearing the uh, you know the old Marvel Girl costume from the the Neil Adams stuff there. Maybe it'll all make sense. Maybe everything here is leading to something deeper and. Uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But uh, thank you so much for uh, for sending in your thoughts about that issue there, Evan. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, for anybody else who'd like to uh, join the show here and send in some thoughts, I would uh, love for you to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You could shoot me a message on Instagram at 90sXmen. Or you can shoot me an old-fashioned email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. See, one of the good things about this show going on hiatus until the books come in is uh, that we might be able to build up a decent mailbag again. So really looking forward to that. And also, uh, you know, it'll give folks the opportunity to catch up because this show comes out perhaps too often. (laughs) It's a very likely possibility. Um, Now, for uh, blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to spread the word and share the show and let people know that it uh, it exists. It's a thing in the world uh, that uh, they may hate, they may love, but uh, it's here for them if they want it. But that's all I got to say for today. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing some of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
This is Chris. Welcome to episode 187 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I've been smacked in the face with allergies. So um, apologies if I sound a little bit raspier than usual today, but uh, we got a lot to talk about, so let's hop right on in here. This is going to be Marauders number 19, which had a June 2021 cover date. Story's called Fire and Ice. And, um, hmm... Yeah, not not much point to... I mean, there is a point to that title, but uh, that doesn't seem like the main point of this issue, but we'll get there. Written by Jerry Duggan with art by Stefano Caselli. Colors Edgar Delgado. Led is VC's Ariana Mar. Designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Bisa white Sabolski. Cover price $3.99. And this one went on sale April 7 of 2021. Now this one opens with one of those uh, mostly blank quote pages that we love so much. This one comes from a guy named Patch. Some dude called Patch. I wonder who that could be. Huh. Anyway, uh, well, what he talks about is... Um, I'm not sure if you've ever heard this before. Stop me if you've heard this one. Uh, Madripoor is a lawless place. You know, it's a very, very lawless place. I'm not sure if you were aware of that. They, they hardly ever mention it. From here, we go to straight to our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred, and our characters today will include, but not be limited to, Callisto, Iceman, Bishop, Call Me Kate, Pyro, and Mask. And we open with the Reavers causing all sorts, and this is the new Reavers, of course, causing all sorts of havoc around Lowtown, which is pretty much right where we left things off last issue. It's worth noting here that the narration refers to them as being post-human. And I gotta ask, is that uh, stretching the definition, or are we just calling any sort of enhanced human post-human now? I suppose it stands to reason, right? Um, I'm not sure, though. I don't know if this is post-human in the Hickman sense, or post-human in just the enhanced human sense. I don't know. Well, Omenes Verendi, our friends there, they're watching Lowtown burn from their balcony, and uh, also, via spyglass, they're looking out to the bay where the marauder is sitting, but is unable to actually, you know... Do anything to help Now, if you recall, uh, last issue The uh, United Nations instructed the Marauders To stay off Madripoor uh, Due to the uh, big brouhaha at the Princess Bar And so the Marauder They're surrounded by a pair of large naval ships Looking to enforce the UN ruling The Hellfire Tot's nanny, Chen Whatserface Comments that uh, should the Marauders interfere Krakoa would lose its recognition from the UN Which... I'm not sure that's how it works. Um, doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense to me, but I ain't no statesman, so what do I know? Now, on board the Marauder, we got Call Me Kate and the crew, and they're trying to brainstorm ways in which they might aid the Lotownians. Callisto initially seems a bit hesitant to whatever it is that Kitty's planning, but she comes around pretty quick. She leaves the ship via a gateway, and we'll catch up with her in just a little bit. On the boat, we figure out why this issue is called Fire and Ice. Pyro and Iceman are going to use their powers in tandem in order to cause a distraction. 
A distraction, I might mention, that we, the readers, don't actually get to see in this issue. But from what we hear, it's a, uh, something really distracting, <laughs> I guess. Now, Bobby suggests that uh, they, he and Pyro, call themselves the two. Because, they're, well, there's already a five. And he says if they were to call themselves Fire and Ice, like this issue is called, nobody would take them seriously. I'm not sure that the two is all that much better. Um, Fire and ice kind of rolls off the tongue. Maybe you just go with the, you know, you go with the easy one, right? Anyway, to enact her half of the plan, Kitty prepares to go overboard. She hands over her Star of David necklace, and in the close-up, we can see uh, her hands. They still have that dumb Kill Shaw tattoo on the knucks. Pyro hands her a Krakoa bulb, like a little plant thing, and uh, ordered a plant when she reaches her destination, wherever... That may be. So, Kitty dives, and the two create some crazy-ass flaming ice sculpture. And it works like a charm. Uh, The two naval ships are so distracted by the sculpture, which, again, we don't actually get to see, that they didn't realize that Kitty dropped into the drink here. And um, I'm open to suggestions as to what this um, sculpture might be. Um, The more vulgar, the better, I would imagine, right? Because... I mean, how else are you going to distract all these people? It's got to be something phallic, um, something bosomy. I I don't know. (laughs) I'm figuring it's probably something a little bit... uh, I mean, that's the only reason why we couldn't have seen it, right? had to be something a little lascivious, uh, if that's the right term for it here. Um, So, we go back to Kitty here, and she swims through a sewage pipe on the edge of Madripoor and through into the sewers... When she pulls herself out of the sewage, she vomits a lot. Topside on the island, we see the Fisher family, who nursed Lockheed back to health, running away from the Reavers. Kitty plants the Krakoan bulb in the sewer while thinking about the Mora McTaggart hospital that they just erected to help the people of Lowtown. From here, we shift scenes to uh, Callisto, who is in Rio Verde, Arizona, where first thing she does is complain about the Arizona sun. And yeah, it, it sucks. <laughs> We're already in the triple digits Fahrenheit out here, and it's uh, not the greatest. Um, anyway, she's here to pick up a crew of Morlocks to enact her half of this plan, this mission. And we've got a motley five some of Underworlders here, so how about we meet them? We don't get a roll call page, but uh, I think we can make do. We've got Mask, of course, and uh, we already know what he's doing right now. He's played a decent-sized role last issue in working at uh, McTaggart General. We got Marrow, another familiar face and a recent loser in the X-Men election. We got Hump and Brute, a pair of Liefeldian relics from the latter issues of the original New Mutants, and they look exactly how they sound. And we got Bliss. Bliss. Hmm. Now this one looks a lot like uh, X-Factor era Jean Grey, and I wonder what that's all about. Uh, She's got this disgusting extending tongue with a head on the end of it. It's very, very gross. Anyway, Kalisto is here to talk this crew into heading into Madripoor and fighting off the Reavers. You know, since they've chosen not to live on Krakoa, and they're also not in Marauders, it's kind of a loophole we can play with around the UN edict to stay out of the place, right? Now, Mask ain't feeling it. Until Kalisto informs him that McTaggart General will probably be burned to the ground during the fracas if they don't. And so, through the gateway they go. And they arrive in the Madriporian sewer where Kitty planted the connecting bulb. Mask isn't wildly impressed that they're going to be emerging from the sewers, 
you know, like they have for their entire existence to this point. Uh, Kitty, it might be worth mentioning, is still power puking. Now, topside, the Fisher family are still on the run, when suddenly Guy Gardner Warrior shows up and blasts the Fisher father in the chest. Now, before he can kill the Fisher daughter, however, Mask clocks him on the back of the head with his little club gimmick. From here, we get a few pages of the Morlocks absolutely decimating the all-new Reavers. Which, I mean, if the Morlocks can beat them, surely, like, the one, the, the, the average one-legged Lotownian could probably beat them, right? Because this, uh, this is a motley crew here. Anyway, either Hump or Brute asks if they're allowed to kill these new Reavers, wondering if they are human. He doesn't wait for an answer, though, and he just starts killing. I mean, do I even need to bring this up again? Uh, the Krakoan law vacillates between kill no man and kill no human, so maybe we should just, like, I don't know, err on the side of caution and just not kill anything. I don't know. Maybe we could just say that the Morlocks were deputized as members of X-Force for this scene. But also, I mean, I don't want to point out inconsistencies, especially if they're just inconsistencies that I'm imagining, but um, these Morlocks don't live on Krakoa, so I don't know that they necessarily have to ab- uh, you know, abide by Krakoan law. So why even ask the question in the first place? I mean, that's kind of the whole reason they're here, right? That they live in Rio Verde. They don't live on Krakoa. They're not part of the mutant nation. I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking too much. Anyway, this is what it, this comes down to is basically just yet another mention of the top secret Krakoan Phantom Zone where Sabretooth is being kept. And I really thought that this was like a, a Quiet Council only sort of thing. This is like need to know information and only the Quiet Council needs to know it. So how does everybody seem to know? And nobody seems all that interested in doing anything about it? I don't know. So let's return to the Marauder, where Call Me Kate is swimming back from the cloudy Madriporian turlet water here. Um, now, on, on board, Pyro offers her a Pyrogarita, because uh, of course he does. Um, I gotta say, I probably would have went with a Pyrotini, because, I mean, that's just easier to say, but that's just me. Iceman's like, hey, Kitty, ask me where Bishop went. And so she goes, hey, Bobby, where did Bishop went? <laughs> and that takes us to our next scene shift. And we're in Max von Frankenstein's lab. Now, Bishop is there, and he holds a gun to Max's head and tells him to stop turning men into monsters. To which Max calmly and casually responds. Uh, he suggests that the mutants stop turning men into hamburger meat. Well, touche. Bishop informs Max that he is taking his lab away from him, and Max, he ain't all that worried. He ain't sweating this at all. He's uh, never going to stop doing what he does. He says, you're just going to slow me down a little bit. You ain't going to stop me. Then... Bishop blows the place up. Back on the streets, the Morlocks continue to make fools out of the new Reavers. Mask discovers that Kalisto lied to him when Guy Gardner Warrior tells him that the Reavers were informed to destroy everything in Lowtown except McTaggart General. Wonk, wonk, wonk. We wrap up our issue back at the Princess Bar after the dust settles. Marrow offers the Fisher daughter a job running the place, which, you know, more than makes up for her having her father murdered right in front of her like six minutes ago. Then a random Lowtownian bar patron suggests they change the name of the area from Lowtown to Mutytown. I thought Mutie was a slur. Eh? Way to be progressive, random Lowtownian bar patron. Uh, from here, we wrap with an info page, and it's more Hellfire Gala lead-up coming to us from the X-Desk. And I think I said this last episode, 
the more we hear about the Hellfire Gala, the less I actually want to read it. And uh, that's not a good place to be, but uh, we will take it as it comes. Uh, That is the end of this issue. Next episode, we're going to be wrapping up our Runaways three-parter, our little uh, off-the-beaten-path trek in Griffith Park. So uh, look forward to that. But for now, let's talk about Marauders. Now, what is that... uh... What's that Michael Jackson song they play, like, incessantly around Halloween? Is it called Filler? Filler Night? Is that what it is? Because, uh, yeah, this feels kind of fillery here. Um, and, I mean, it's hard to hold it against the book. It's hard to hold it against any of these books, really. But um, I feel like this season um, we got this very, very small window in order to um, tell stories. We had the Ex of Swords end, right? And um, they mentioned the Hellfire Gala, and I was assuming right off the bat that the gala was going to be in the fall. You know, I figured it'd be like almost exactly a year after Ex of Swords, just to give these uh, give these titles a little bit of room to breathe. But no, <laughs> that's not happening at all. So instead of giving the books like adequate paginal real estate to build stories, right, lay foundation, tell, actually do something here. We're getting these short subjects, right? We're getting, like, these little two-parters. And, I mean, I've complained about the six-parter a lot, or the five-parter, the new uh, the new version of the six-parter. But um, And I would beg for one-offs or two-offs or whatever. But here, it just feels like we're filling pages because we got to get to the next event. And I'm projecting a lot of that. I, I will concede that. But these past two issues of Marauders felt kind of like a uh, like a one-two punch, but not in the good way. It was like we spent all last issue building up the the threat, building up the the challenge. Right? We gotta we get the Marauders where they're not allowed on uh, Madripoor anymore. And then right here, we figure out the way around it. Feels like you know we we stacked up the pins and we knocked them down. And that's really that's really all we did here. Now the way they did it was clever, right? Bringing in the Morlocks from Rio Verde, but by that same token, it was also quite inconsistent. Um, like I mentioned during the synopsis here, they were brought in simply because they weren't Marauders and they're not Krakoan. They're not living on Krakoa, and yet when they show up, they're like abiding by Krakoan law or fearing repercussions for not abiding by Krakoan law. So that makes you ask the question, does it matter if you live on Krakoa or not? If you're a mutant, do you just have this law over your head? Um, and I mean, of course, on planet Earth, our own planet Earth, you know, murder is is a crime. But um, this is a world where mutants are not going to um, answer to man, man's laws. They're not going to answer to man's courts, right? They're not going to go on trial in man's world that was kind of one of the things they laid out during Hoxpox. so does that mean that every mutant whether they're living on Krakoa or not has to make more mutants not kill humans and or men um and uh respect Krakoan land I the sacred Krakoan land I I really I really don't know it's it's one of those things that I'm probably I'm probably overthinking it. And let's talk about the uh, the threat here, the new Reavers. Um, they're labeled in the narration as post-human, and yet the Morlocks are able to just wipe them out with very little effort. And these Morlocks that we had are 
they're geeks, right? I mean, Mask took Guy Gardner Warrior out with a little clock to the head with his little cane. I feel like labeling these new Reavers as post-human really uh, lowers the stock of post-humans overall. It's like, this is the big threat? Maybe not. Um, uh, Speaking of threats here, we really need to uh, do something with Omenes Verendi. We gotta, like, spit or get off the pot, right? We gotta do something here. They've been the threat for two years now. And, I mean, this is something that isn't exclusive to Marauders, right? In all the books here, our threats are just lingering. And they're not getting any stronger. They're not getting any scarier. They're not getting any more dangerous. They're not getting any more threatening. They're just there, lingering, waiting for the story to happen. Uh, in this book, we have Omen as Verindy. In X-Force, we have Zeno. In Excalibur, we got Otherworld and uh, the Coven Akaba. It's <laughs> like... We gotta do something. We gotta move on. It feels like we're just treading water here, and um, these threats are becoming quite long in the tooth. And the longer that they linger, because I mean, I don't have any doubt that a lot of these people are going to show up at the gala because I think the gala is one of the main selling points of the gala is that. There's going to be friends and enemies, humans and mutants, cats and dogs cohabitating at this thing, right? It's quite the exclusive party. So I'm sure we're going to have um, Cade Kilgore. He'll probably be there. The the butterfly guy from uh, the, the the Court of Owls over in X-Force will be there. What's-her-face from the X-Desk will be there. It's, it's you know, we're treading water. And that's uh, unfortunate when we're expected to shell out 4 to $5 per issue and... All we're doing, it's like, instead of it being a monthly event, these comics, um, not that I want everything to be a monthly event, but I want I want these stories to build. I want these stories to, you know, happen, <laughs> finally happen. It's starting to feel, and this might just be an X-lapsed problem, and the way that I'm covering these books, it feels like, a, like I'm watching Days of Our Lives here, a, a daily soap opera where... Nothing really happens. You watch you watch a soap opera, and Monday through Thursday, nothing happens. Then on Friday, the last five minutes of the show is what really gets you invested. It's like, okay, something's happening, something's happening, and then it's the cliffhanger. And then you have the weekend, and you have to like sit with it over the weekend. Then Monday, you see the cliffhanger again, and then for the next four days, nothing happens. And that kind of feels like how these books are going in the interim here between uh, the Exoswords and uh, the Hellfire Gala. Now, I do understand the realities of comics publishing here and the fact that uh, we have to build to the event. Because the event is... I, I feel like, and again, this is me projecting, we don't have sales figures because Comicron and Diamond, they aren't updating them past last October for some reason. But um, I don't have sales figures. But the way I look at it is that these event books are the ones paying for the rest of the books. So these issues that we're looking at right now are kind of the loss leaders, right? They're the ones that uh, they're not going to sell as well. I mean, that's just that's just the nature of the business. They're not going to sell as well. They're not going to be as widely read. And honestly, if anything worth seeing is going to happen in any of these books, Marvel themselves will spoil it a month and a half before it comes out. So the books that we don't get spoiled are the ones that it's like, yeah, this is just, you know, Tuesday, days of our lives. It's, nothing's happening. But uh, 
don't really have much to say about this issue, if uh, <laughs> in case that wasn't entirely clear. Um, I didn't hate it. Um, I, you know, I enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, I think my main takeaway is Bishop blowing up the lab because I looked at this as um, not, not Marauder's business. We know from past info pages that Bishop is reporting a lot of this stuff back to Hank McCoy. And Hank McCoy, he's X-Force, X-Force has immunity, you know, they don't have to answer to anybody really. Of course, they'd have to answer to the United Nations, but uh, in what he did there, I don't see that as him acting in the interests of the Marauders here. I, I see that as him doing something at the behest of the Beast with a, with a result that he can report back. Again, I might be completely out to lunch on that one, but that's... Just what I got from it. Really the only thing that I see resonating um, going forward here. I mean, we might get the the Fisher daughter working at the Princess Bar for what that's worth. But um, yeah, I think that's all I got to say about this issue. Um, If you agree or disagree, I would love to hear from you. Uh, Speaking of which, let's hop into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Excalibur number 17. He says, I enjoyed this issue of Excalibur quite a bit more than usual. I like the idea of characters in a cross-time world creating a guidebook for when their alternate counterparts eventually arrive. It's logical within the world of Queen Elizabeth. I also thought that Howard and Toad did a good job of delineating the differences and similarities between the two Betsys and their histories. What I couldn't understand was our Betsy's motivation for questioning an alternate version of Quinan. What is she going to discover that is helpful? Are we meant to assume that Betsy wants to talk with Quinan but feels too guilty to approach the one that she replaced? I still don't quite see the purpose from the character's point of view, but it was a great way to illustrate the difference between the Earths. And yeah, that's one of the things that really stuck out to me as well. Um, and in the discussion, like, if I'm remembering right, Quinan's like, okay, you got three questions, right? She's like, you can ask me three questions and I'll tell you three answers. And like... The questions were like the dumbest thing ever. It's like, where's my brother? It's like, well, this is an alternate Earth. What does it matter? You know, <laughs> it really doesn't. Unless unless she wants to make sure that her brother is okay in every Earth. And I mean, if she was that interested, wouldn't Warren Worthington know? Like the Warren Worthington of that Earth? Wouldn't he know what happened to Brian? I just... Uh... I don't know, and her uh, talking about like whether or not Quanan's always been in her own body, it just seemed like yet another reminder. We don't need this reminder anymore, do we? I mean, I joke about it every time we talk about it. It's like, oh, did you know <laughs> that Betsy once occupied Quanan's body? But honestly, uh, and without irony, uh, we don't need that reminder. But they, I, I don't know if they think we're stupid. I don't know if this is the old uh, every issue could be someone's first, which, I mean, it's of course it's not, because, I mean, these, these books would be written totally different if that were the case, but I, I'm i just tired of the reminder. <laughs> really, really am. Uh, Damien continues. One of my favorite elements of this story was Rogue's inability to keep the whole England, Great Britain, UK thing straight. Amen to that, because, uh, yeah, <laughs> I stumble over that. Every single time. Damien continues, It felt genuine and it made me smile. I just hope there's something coming to rehabilitate Richter. He's really boring now. 
It's all druids and apocalypse. Could we transfer him to X-Factor so he can go to Mojo World and then team up with Shatterstar again? I'm sure that would take the, his mind off the druids. And yeah, um, I mean, it's funny. It's like they took... They took everything unique away from Richter, including his, including the way he looked, you know? Um, he's just a dude with brown hair. Uh, he, could, he could blend into any group scene. He doesn't stand out. Um, and, like you said, he's very, very boring now. It's all about the grimoire. It's all about apocalypse. It ha- it's... He's lost everything that made him unique. And, I mean, he wasn't a... A terribly, uh, you know, exciting character beforehand, but at least he had some things going for him here. And here it's just like, it's like, who's that normal dude on Excalibur? Oh, okay, it's Richter. He doesn't have a unique look. He doesn't have a unique anything. He's just that guy. <laughs> they might as well not even draw a face on his head. He's just a blank slate. Uh, Damien wraps up with, anyway, until the druids come after me for calling them boring... Make mine X lapse. And uh, from what I know about England slash Great Britain slash the UK is that druids do live on every corner. So you have to be careful if you're going to refer to them as boring because uh, they might come after you. That's that's what I know about about uh, about England slash Great Britain slash UK. You've got wizards, you got dragons, <laughs> and you've got druids. And you have a uh, you have those phone booths that travel through uh, time. I think right is that the thing. But uh, thank you so much for writing in about Excalibur. We got plenty more coming from Damien over the next several episodes, and I'm really looking forward to it. Next up, Evan talking about Hellions number nine. He says, so, shocker, Hellions was good. Well, yes, of course it was. Evan continues, I don't know if I was reading more into it than was there, but it seems like Wells is setting up a love or lust triangle with Wildchild, Quinan, and Greycrow. It has the added awkwardness bonus that Grey Crow is kind of like Wildchild's mentor at this point. If you had told me a year ago someone would be, would be writing any kind of subplot featuring those three characters, I would have politely nodded and then tried to turn the conversation towards Squirrel Girl. But here I am, interested in Psylocke's former host. Did you know Brian Braddock's beautiful British <laughs> sister Betsy once occupied Quinan's body? I did not know that. Oh, that caught me off guard. Oh, boy. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> so he's interested in Psylocke's former host, Sabretooth Jr., and a mass murderer with a politically correct uh, code name who seems to genuinely care for his teammates past and present. You're right. You're right. I would have never thought that this would have been something I'd be interested in. I would have... Um, I mean, because these three characters, uh, who cares, right? I mean, I think that um, Grey Crow had a little bit of cachet. He would come up in a lot of people's, you know, favorite underrated character uh, list. And because uh, he does have a cool look, he's got a cool gimmick. Uh, Wild Child, I don't think, would ever come up in that conversation. And um, Quanon, probably not either. But here we are. And I don't think you're reading anything into it. I think this is absolutely there here. Uh, since Wild Child's come back, he's got this—he's uh, got a bit of a raging libido, right? He wants to uh, let his alpha out, and he definitely has the hot pants for Psylocke. And we have this weird mutual admiration and respect, you know, budding between Quanon and John here. So I definitely think that they're headed that way, and I hope they are, because it is—it uh, is interesting here, and. Um, 
In a wild child, this might be the most interesting he's ever been in this guise, right? So it will be interesting to see if um, his resurrection has made him more mature, or if uh, if maybe it made him a little bit more bestial, right? Um, if he catches, you know, Quanan and uh, Grey Crow making out, uh, I wonder what might happen there. That's uh, very interesting. Now Evan continues, I don't know much about Orphan Maker, but my impression was that he's an adult with a childlike mind and a penchant for violence. I really don't know myself. I really don't know. Um, we might have to take a look at Orphan Maker sometime soon to try to try to flesh him out. He might be a candidate for uh, fake-ass comics history sometime down the line. Maybe, maybe the next time we talk about the Hellions, we'll talk about the life and times of Orphan Maker, because it'll, it'll give me an excuse to do a little bit of research and... Uh, I think it could be some fun discussions and fun discoveries. Evan continues, I don't know that it's a good idea for you to talk about sales figures on Hellions Day. I know. <laughs> I'm already surprised the series is reaching double digits, and I keep worrying that it'll be taken from us too soon. I hope I'm wrong, and I hope we see Zeb Wells take a stab, pun intended, at the Crucible, since he seems to ask the hard questions better than any other writer in the X-Stable right now. Oh boy, yeah, absolutely. Could you imagine Zeb Wells spending an issue talking about the Crucible? I mean, that's I, I you know, charge ten bucks for it. I'm buying it. <laughs> you know, uh, he is um, he, like you said here. He asks all these tough questions here. Um, where where you know, empath, the many deaths of empath. You have Orphan Maker. You know, his uh, childlike mind asking like, well, is this really him or is this not him? And uh, well, no, it just looks like him, but we're going to treat him like him anyway. All these weird, weird questions that need to be asked and just aren't, except in this book. So I do hope that, uh, man, I would love to see it. I would absolutely love to see it. Now Evan continues, or he wraps up with. So until Call Me Kate starts dating Orphan Maker because he's one of the only Marvel characters named Peter, sorry, Pete, who with whom she hasn't locked lips, <laughs> make mine ex-lapsed. And yeah, isn't that crazy? Um, <laughs> she's, she's had, what, four, I mean, three boyfriends, three, like, main boyfriends in the main Marvel universe, and she's had one in the Ultimate Universe, right? Now, for the main Marvel Universe, the 616, of course, Colossus, Peter Rasputin, uh, Pete Wisdom, uh, over an Excalibur, and Peter Quill, Star-Lord, uh, in recent years, right? Then over in the Ultimate Universe, she was dating Peter Parker, Spider-Man. So, <laughs> she might have a, uh, I don't want to say Peter fetish, because that, uh, that's a lot less innocent than, uh, than it ought to be, but... Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting thing here. I wonder if uh, if she'll start sniffing around Orphan Maker anytime soon. I, I guess we can uh, we can we can only hope, right? <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for writing in about uh, boy the flagship book of this line, Hellions Seven, and uh, your you know your mouth to God's ears here. Hopefully, it doesn't get taken from us anytime soon. Next up, we got Andrew Franklin talking about X Factor number eight. He says, I've really enjoyed parts of the last few issues of X-Factor, but I have to admit that the Morrigan plot has left me kind of cold. I enjoyed the mystery of what exactly was going on with Siren in issue number six, but since I never read the story that this is continuing from, the reveal of Siren's possession didn't really land for me. Not really the creative team's fault, but unfortunately it has colored my opinion of the last few issues. 
And I tell you, I did read that story over in uh, the Peter David X Factor, and I totally forgot about it. I forgot about the Morgan, and um, when the Morgan did show up here, I it made sense, and I liked it because it played with lore, and that's something that not every book does. X Factor, you know, it's so weird when we talk about X Factor, and we go back to the early issues that I absolutely just slogged through. Here we are, and it's one of the more traditional books in the line. It feels like it could be, I mean, of course, with uh, modern things amended to be a little bit more uh, in the gestalt, this could be an 80s comic, right? There's a lot of the old Claremontian, not so much tropes, but uh, technique. You know, we have subplots that unfortunately, I mean, who knows if we're going to get to all of them because of... Because this book is going away from us But um, also in playing with uh, established X-Men, X-Book, X-Universe lore And that's, uh, I love it I love that they're doing that Uh, Andrew continues I didn't really like the strange tease ending of issue number 7 Where we see in a jump cut that most of the team is already dead In hindsight, this might have been the first showing of the story rushing That also seems to happen in issue number 8 like in Cable, it makes sense now that we know that the title's canceled, but it does unfortunately affect the quality of the story for me. The fight with the Morrigan is wrapped up very quickly, and I suspect that the issue might have taken up two issues if Leia Williams didn't have to wrap things up in a few issue, in the few issues that she has left. At the end of the issue, I couldn't help but think, oh, that was pretty easy. A more charitable interpretation could be that the team is very capable and work, well, work, work together very well, which I do think is true, but that just highlights how disappointing it is that X-Factor is being cancelled. And I totally agree. I totally agree there. Um, the jump cut felt weird. It felt like, uh, you know, we were kind of re, uh, refiguring the story to make things fit. Uh, also, like you mentioned here, the fight, it kind of just came and went, didn't it? Uh, the, what was it? Uh, Rachel and Polaris just kind of used the Care Bear stare and uh, beat the Morgan. But in the lead-up to that, uh, all the zombified, uh, reanimated corpses of X-Factor were haunting the Boneyard, right? Which I think they definitely left money on the table there because that, I mean, that that just could have brought up so many of those questions that we're asking here. You have Dakin, Dakin facing off against Dakin, Dakin. Which one's the real one, right? Um, what makes a reanimated corpse any different from a resurrectee? There are so many questions that we can ask there But unfortunately, like you said here um, The signs of truncation are definitely there, unfortunately I know Leah Williams said that she got the word That the book was being cancelled while she was writing issue 9 But it does kind of feel like maybe it was issue 8 Because this was This was a very, very conveniently told story And, um Definitely had the potential to be uh, to be quite a bit more than what it was here. Andrew continues, as much as the Morrigan plot hasn't excited me, all the other stuff has been a pleasure to read. I would really like to know what's going on with Prodigy, and I've enjoyed how Leah Williams has sprinkled that mystery through the last few issues. I like how she's been focusing on Eye Boy and exploring how useful and powerful his abilities can be. Leah Williams is really good at giving her characters humanity, and I've really grown to like Eye Boy's enthusiastic positivity. 
Also, great use of the info pages this issue, both in examining Prodigy's manipulated photo, which really serves to enhance that mystery, and to Northstar's no email exchange. It's a funny and is good character work for John Paul. It's going to be a shame if these characters aren't used after this series ends. And yeah, I mean, you know me, I am not a booster of these info pages. I will complain about them if you give me if you give me 5 seconds, I will fit a complaint about an info page in, but here it works. It really really does. It actually adds to the story and doesn't replace story. You know, that's what these things need to be. They need to be flavor. They don't need to be the meal where you look at a Hickman book and the info pages are you know, you have your meat, and instead of a vegetable, you have an info page, right? Here we have a plate full of food. We got a balanced meal plus info pages on the side. Info pages that actually, the info page is salt and pepper, right? And we can actually sprinkle that on our food and add flavor to it. And, I mean, I, I probably ran that analogy <laughs> a few sentences too far, but hopefully you get my meaning. And it's... I mean, it's just a damn, damn shame that this book is going away because we do have the Prodigy mystery. How are we going to wrap that up so quick, right? The iBoy thing, and I, the iBoy thing was one of my main takeaways for that issue. You have Professor X starting to sniff around, right? It's like, well, I, uh, you know, John Paul, I want you to, I want you to tell me anytime iBoy does something, and he's like, don't trust you. Nope, <laughs> not going to do it. And we were able to theorize. From that one-word email, because it does totally fit into John Ball's character, because he can be a jerk, right? But we also know that he doesn't trust the Quiet Council as far as he can throw them. So we can read into that, we can theorize, and we can wonder, like, what is it that iBoy can see? Can he see into time? Can he see the no place? So many questions, and it's just a damn shame that I don't know that they're going to be answered And by Leah Williams, who has set the table so well. I really don't know. And I hope that these story threads, like you said here, I hope these characters and these story bits don't just get thrown to the wayside. Again, it's just just a damn shame. This is one of the very few books out there that has a reason to, to exist. It actually is different than some of the other books out there. Anyway, Andrew wraps up with, So until we can be sure the Trial of Magneto doesn't have the pretentious music piece story titles, make mine X-Labs. Yes, Leia Williams will be writing the Trial of Magneto, which I was hoping... You know, I had heard uh, secondhand about the cancellation of X-Factor, and um, I was hopeful that maybe uh, the people who were telling me about it were just mistaken, you know? And it's like, no, 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 it's just going on break. You know, maybe maybe X Factor's ending with issue ten, so then we can get the I don't know how many issues of Trial of Magneto is, I'm assuming four or five. So like we'll get X Factor ten, then we'll get the Trial of Magneto one through four or five, and then X Factor eleven will come out. You know, this is just gonna replace X Factor in the schedule for now because it's Leo Williams doing it. X Factor is supposedly going to be part of it. I don't know. I, I don't think that's gonna be the case, unfortunately. Anytime I think about one of these books getting canceled, I'm reminded of um, the earliest uh, Jonathan Hickman stuff, where I don't remember where I read it or where I heard it, but I think that the original plan was going to be that the six launch titles, right, they were going to go 10 to 12 issues, get canceled, 
and then we get all new number ones that might have repeat titles in there or that might explore different titles. But the sales were unexpectedly high for these early issues of the Dawn of X books, so they decided to keep it going. And then COVID happened, which pushed X of Swords back, uh, you know, exponentially, right? It's several months. God, that got pushed back. And it probably wasn't the smartest time to cancel and launch new books while... People aren't sure if their shops are going to be open. They aren't sure if these books are going to come out. They aren't sure if the, the mail is going to work. Um, so I think a lot of things contributed to the books that we have now getting into the 20s, right? And now I think we might start to see the original Hickman plan, if it's true, of course, where we're going to have books make it to issue 10 or issue 12 or issue 15 and then wiped off the board and something else happens here, which... Much as I hate to say it, does not bode well for our Hellions. It really, really doesn't. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Andrew. And I got both of your messages, so uh, we have more from Andrew in the coming episodes. So thank you so, so much. Now, before we go, we have two of our little side segments to get through here. We have a very, very short news update here. So um, got a question for you. Who is Somnus? Hmm, who is Somnus? Now, for those unaware, we will, uh, I would say meet, but I think we already met him. Uh, we're going to meet this character in Marvel's Voices Pride, the, uh, the one shot coming out, I believe, in June. So we will probably be discussing it in uh, the first weeks of July. And uh, the picture's been going around uh, the internet. Uh, it's a character um, with a stylized X uniform and also uh, something that kind of looks like the night mask hoodoo from uh, the new uh, universe, which makes me think that this is probably the character from the Danny Moonstar story in Marvel Voices, uh, Indigenous Voices. Now that episode is in the archives if anybody would like to check out the Indigenous Voices uh, conversation there, but um, if you're not familiar with that story, uh, Danny Moonstar and uh, Rain were called to a small town here in Arizona, where uh, I believe it was Arizona, where a young boy exhibited his uh, mutant powers and uh, was getting hunted down by the sheriff and his posse. I can't say for sure that it's the same character, but um, since they had that same sort of night mask um, little uh, iconography, I don't know, but uh, since it resembled the night mask thing, it's making me put two and two together, and I, you know, I might, I might add up to five when I do so, so, I don't know, I, I just think it's the same, uh, the same character, and, uh, looking forward to, uh, meeting him in his, uh, superhero togs sometime during this summer, maybe he will, uh, maybe he'll join one of our teams, you never know. Now, before we cut on out of here, let's do a little bit of fake-ass comics history. Now we're going to be talking uh, about a character that I don't know that very many people know a whole heck of a lot about. I know that I didn't before engaging in this research. And this research, it's worth mentioning, was a hybrid research here. It was a lot of fun to do. I used the Marvel Wiki to um, procure the uh, issue numbers and which books this character appeared in. And then I went to my long boxes and I dug them all out. Uh, it's, it was only like uh, a dozen or so issues from... Three or four different boxes, but uh, no big deal Because I had a fun time doing it I was able to flip through some old books, some newer books And uh, just uh, do uh, do some old-fashioned research here That's something that always tickles me Because I don't often get the opportunity to do it But I think in our little F.A. Comics History segment here I might get, I might get uh, the opportunity to flex that muscle a little bit more So 
Today we're going to learn about Bliss. Bliss, who is that? Of course, it's the character we saw here today, one of Mask's Morlocks, the one with the nasty, disgusting tongue. And uh, she was also in the X-Factor Jean Grey uniform, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as we go through. Now, Bliss's first appearance was in Uncanny X-Men issue 261. That had a May 1990 cover date. That issue was by Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri. Now, uh, if you don't have the issue in front of you, which you probably don't, this is the Hard Case and the Harriers issue. If you remember that, I remember thinking that these characters were going to be huge because they were prominently named on the cover of an issue of Uncanny X-Men that was probably pinned to a wall with a $10 price tag on it the first time I saw it. And I wonder if Chris Claremont assumed he'd get more mileage out of uh, Hard Case and the Harriers. Maybe a, at least a limited series, a one-shot, I don't know. Anyway, Bliss is introduced during a run-in with Jean Grey. Now, she had taken the form of Jean in her X-Factor costume, much like we saw here today. Of course, that was at the hands of uh, Mask, who can, who can change the way people look uh, with, a, with but a touch. Now, Jean initially fears that this is another Madeline Pryor-esque doppelganger, and... Bliss takes Jean out with her nasty tongue-head thing. The following issue opens with Bliss as Jean stood over the real deal Jean while several of the Morlocks celebrate. Now, Forge and Banshee, they've spotted the Morlocks, and the uh, former has a clear shot at taking Bliss out. Banshee reminds Forge that uh, they really ought not kill. He probably He's probably scared of winding up in the hole with Sabretooth, right? Forge decides to fire off a stun grenade, but the Morlocks teleport away as it goes off. They leave Jean behind, however, so the fellas are able to rescue her. Now later, as Jean recovers, she and Banshee are teleported away into the sewers by the Morlocks. Forge goes to track them down. However, as he does so, he is haunted by Vietnam flashbacks. He starts seeing things that aren't there, probably likely due to um, probably a mind-controlling Morlock of some sort. Now, as he fights his way through, he runs across Morlocks that are being made to resemble various X-Men. And by resemble, I mean they've got like crazy Morlockian bodies, but X-Men-looking heads. We've got a Warlock, a Beast, a Magic, a Havoc, a Storm, an Angel. It's just a lot of X-Men, you know. So as Forge is increasingly overwhelmed, Banshee and Jean enter the fight. Now, Forge manages to kill a foe Storm. He then notices that his friends have changed. Banshee's mouth is closed over, so it's like Mask touched his face and changed it. Uh, meaning that he can't scream, of course, unless he can do so through his nostrils. I don't know, maybe he plugs one and screams out the other. Gene, for reasons unknown to me, um, has what seems to be hundreds of tentacles instead of arms. And uh, it's as disturbing as it sounds. Now... This is all going on while Mask is attempting to pull off a coup here. He's taking over the Morlocks from Callisto, and Bliss, the character we're talking about here, is aligned with him for this. And we see her now, and she now resembles Storm. Okay. Callisto is running with Colossus, who is still in his post-siege perilous Peter Nicholas persona, and they had a little bit of a fling around this time. Uh, Callisto was a, was a fashion model at this point, if you can believe it. Now, they wind up fighting through Mask's Morlock, and Bliss as Storm uses her tongue thing to bite Callisto on the neck. Later, Forge arrives, and Bliss goes to bite him, but only reaches his cybernetic hand. He then karate chops the tongue, putting Bliss out for many, many years. For reasons unknown to me, and I assume many, Bliss was one of the 198 mutants to retain their powers post-M-Day, the, you know, the Scarlet Witch No More Mutants thing. 
Next, in Uncanny X-Men number 487 by Ed Brubaker and Salvador LaRocca, Masks Morlocks show up to kidnap Leech, beat up Caliban, and uh, defeat Magneto. Bliss is still in her, in her like Claremont Silvestri era storm look here. Now the gimmick we got going here is that a Morlock called Qwerty, like the you know first six keys on your uh, keyboard there, they wrote some sort of a prophecy about the future of mutantdom. During a fight scene, Bliss pulls the vampire tongue gimmick on Hepzibah, who was on the X-Men at this point in time. Uh, she was also romantically linked to Warpath. Um, Hes- Hepzibah, that is, uh, which is a little weird, right? I don't know. Um, now, Bliss uh, has some second thoughts after seeing Mask take out his frustrations on Proudstar here. The Morlocks manage to capture Storm, and they lock her in a casket, which, as a claustrophobe, can't be all that enjoyable. Now, Storm gets free, and Warpath punches poor Bliss, taking her out of the books for some time again. Uh, The X-Men would move to San Francisco from here and would invite the Morlocks to come west with them, because mutants are welcomed there with open arms. Bliss is taken over by the Shadow King and forced into a fight with Cyclops. How do you think that worked out for her? Uh, Bliss would decide to take the X-Men up on their offer, and she would move to Utopia, which is the other, other 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 time that the X-Men tried creating their own island nation. I mean, hell, they even called this storyline Nation X. From here, Bliss would become what I like to call X-Men wallpaper. She shows up in scenes with other mutants and Morlocks, but doesn't really do all that much. Not that she, you know, did all that much to begin with, I suppose. Now, she would uh, be part of the final arc of Generation Hope, you remember that book, where she helped the character Zero capture and crucify Hope. And, you know, she was basically X-Men wallpaper here, too, but at least she got a line of dialogue in Generation Hope number 16. And uh, here she was still in her storm form. Finally, we see her in X-Men Gold number 24, where she's an inmate at the Robert Kelly Correctional Facility where Kitty, Rachel, and Storm had been tossed at the time. Here, she's just a blonde woman with a disgusting tongue, and I think we see her on, like, three panels. But that brings us up to date... On Bliss, and I'm pretty sure uh, this is the most anybody has ever talked about Bliss before. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, <laughs> but I, I have a sneaking suspicion I'm not. So there is the quick and dirty fake-ass comics history on the character known as Bliss. But uh, that's going to do it for us today here. If anybody would like to uh, write in, say hello, share some thoughts, please, please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. Instagram at 90sXmen, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. For blog posts and show notes, you can hop over to Chris's on infiniteearths.com. You can also join us on Facebook. Our group is 90sXmen. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary and conversation needs, a lot of C's in there, uh, you could head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to uh, spread the word. Share the show. Tell a friend. Help us grow. <laughs> I would really, really appreciate it. Speaking of which, it means a lot to me that you'd hang out with me for uh, an extended episode today. Thank you all so much for that. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.